welcome to the Like Phil podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Uh, today we're going to be talking with Christopher Wallace about masculinity, manliness, the trouble with boys. Uh, Christopher Wallace uh, runs, he's an advisor to men. Um, but for then, a little bit about our sponsors. First one is Seb Furtado Photography. Uh, Sebastian Furtado is a professional photographer who offers online courses for all levels. And he can, no matter where you are, he can move you very quickly towards taking better pictures. And he'll teach you how to take very good pictures, how to um, develop them afterwards in different software programs that they look fantastic. I've seen people sort of extend their skill level rapidly working with him. If you're interested in photography, definitely um, check that out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Good Mix Foods. Uh, Good Mix is a naturopath, sort of formulated uh, custom superfood. It's a mixture of seeds and nuts. It's um, very sort of low-carb, paleo. Uh, it's good for anybody. I mean, I, I have it every breakfast. Um, but it's especially good if you have any kind of... Um, digestive problems like irritable bowel syndrome or things like that. It promotes um, gut health, <laughs> as they say. It's uh, very, very good for your your digestion. If you use the discount code LIKEVILLE15, you can get a 15% discount on your order. Today's episode is also brought to you by Elsa's Bar. Elsa's, if you live in Montreal, you probably know about it. It's my favorite bar in the city. It's We actually bought our place in part because it was close to Elsa's. It's in the middle of the Plateau neighborhood, sort of like the, the hipster neighborhood in town. Uh, it's on Roy Street. They have wonderful atmosphere, really good food, uh, just an all-around fantastic place. Uh, check it out if you're in Montreal or you're going to be visiting Montreal. Today's episode is also brought to you by Café Lalie, uh, Galerie des Artistes, Galerie d'Art. This is a family-owned fine art gallery slash cafe in St. Henry. It's a neighborhood, up-and-coming neighborhood in the city, right by Atwater Market, right by the Lachine Canal. Has uh, great food, uh, fantastic art, really interesting place. It's a mother-daughter business, right? The mother runs the art gallery and the daughter runs the cafe so check it out if you're in saint henry uh, today's episode is also brought to you by our patreon uh, supporters if you're not a patreon supporter you should be we need your money uh, go to www.patreon.com slash likeville podcast you can also support us by leaving a review positive review, of course, on iTunes. Um, you can uh, also join our Facebook group. Just put in like Phil, you'll find us. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the like Phil pod. Right, and we will keep you apprised of various developments, right, you know, future guests, you can ask questions, things like that. Um, and also for people that become Patreon supporters, there are various things like video versions of our interviews, extra bits of interviews that were not put uh, on the regular, on the sort of limited time extra parts that will be there. So uh, 
join up. Without further ado, I give you my conversation with Christopher Wallace. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with Christopher Wallace about masculinity, manliness, the boy crisis, and the work that he does with men as an advisor to men. Uh, welcome, Christopher. Do you go by Chris or Christopher? Everybody calls me Wally. They call you Wally? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. uh, so uh, welcome to the Likeville Podcast, Wally. Yeah. Uh, so maybe before we get into the kind of work you do and what kind of issues you're interested in, maybe you could just, I mean, you have a very, very colorful past. If you could sort of talk about what, uh, you know, what made you you, right? what your background is. It can all be summed up in as I've lived such a faulted life that I can't judge other people, which gives me an advantage in the work that I do because I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, the kind of guy who comes with any kind of presets because I've, I've been there maybe even more depraved than, than my, my clients or the people that I'll coach. So, yeah, so I lived in a family of uh, nine, a naval commander who's off and away, and um, he's a good, stout Newfoundlander who produced uh, 10 children in 12 years, nine of whom survived. And, uh, of course, a uh, small three-bungalow house. And, and uh, you know, uh, Dad was, um, had his own burdens, which we'll talk about. And, um, and what happens when fathers are um, carrying the pain of their, their previous generations into the, fo- into the next generations and what a man should do about that. But yeah, and, uh, and anyway, uh, he, he burned out when I was about 14, 15, and uh, had to take a medical leave, and um, things were not well at home, uneven attachments and a fair bit of violence. And I was out of the house one day. He uh, said, uh, you know, there's only room for one rooster under uh, a roof, and this is my house, so you're out. And out I was at 15. It was a complete surprise to me. Wow. I wasn't really... Uh, you know, off the rails or anything like that. But I descended into a life of, um, I, you know, we seek to kind of recreate our family of origins. And I had two older brothers that suddenly weren't in my life. So I went looking for older brothers. And I found them on the street, but they weren't ideal candidates. Mm-hmm. They were drug dealers and, uh, and uh, guys like that. And so I drifted into that whole um, um, sort of lifestyle. And uh, after a few years, I guess, I, I, I remember actually thinking about it too and saying, well... You know, there's good guys and bad guys in the world, and somebody's got to be a crook. I guess it's it's me. You know, mm. so so I, I lived like that for about ten, twelve years, and then that one. This was point in this was in Montreal, or? Ottawa, Ottawa. Okay. Yep. Yeah, okay. in Ottawa. Yeah. So who was like who was running things in Ottawa at the time? I mean, here we had the West End gang, we had the couple of different who was running stuff well, in back, Ottawa back in the days when I was a kid the Popeyes were still around really yeah and then the, the Popeyes I thought they were only from the 50s you know and then well and then they were taken over by the angels and oh. then it went from there and the, and the the bikers weren't as big as a a uh um, a factor as they are today but in my days you know if you've ever seen the movie goodfellas mm-hmm. that's kind of the way it was yeah just a bunch of guys who get together and you had different crews and um, everybody's busting each other's balls and and vying for um, position uh, all the time but uh, not a serious uh um, you know, uh, sort of, you know, regimented thing like the Rizzutos and the Mafia and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing, nothing like that. But just, you know, it caused me anyways to be involved in it for a long time, carry a gun for many, many years. And, and uh, anyways, I got out of it. Um, I had a little boy. He mm-hmm. actually conceived in the, um, in the Pittsburgh farm camp uh, when I was doing a, a, a penitentiary bit. 
and the, my wife at the time came to visit, and I'd tell the guards to go for uh, a walk and <laughs> holler off into the washroom and, you know, <laughs> nice. bite her on the back of the neck. And all of a sudden, yeah. I came out and I had this little boy. And uh, so it went on for a couple of years, and I was right back into that whole lifestyle. But at about uh, two, two and a half or so, um, I'd been shot through the chest and pinned to a, uh, a covered door of a crack dealers uh, with a with a crossbow. Mm-hmm. Had my arm broken, and the second shot hit me over the head. And anyways, I survived, and I got out of there. My finger in the hole, and and um, made it to my buddy who was waiting around the corner in his Lincoln. He got me to the hospital, and I survived. But I was sitting there, lying on my couch one day, and um, you were shot right through with a crossbow. Yeah, pinned me right to the uh, cupboard. <laughs> That's yeah. insane. And then I then I was stupid enough to pull it out and throw it at him, because uh, because I got a little pissed off. So he reloaded. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, he reloads the damn thing. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, what did you just do? So, <laughs> so, so anyways, um, I, I managed to get out of there. And, um, you know, my arm was broken at the time and I was bleeding and everywhere. And, and, uh, but I stumbled across the lawn and uh, got into my buddy's uh, Lincoln and he got me to the hospital. And he said, you don't mind if I don't stick around? And, of course, that was fine. Mm-hmm. And, but they came running out and they were all over me. And I remember the cops even came into the hospital room um, the next day, and they walked in and they said, oh, it's Wallace, and they just walked out. They didn't even bother interviewing me. So anyways, I'm at home, and I'm recovering, and, I, and I'm, I'm on the couch, and I've got a big shoulder-to-wrist cast on. And uh, my little boy, he was about uh, oh, two, two and a half or so, and he came crawling across the floor, and he came up, and he pulled himself up onto my belly. And... Um, turned himself around and was watching TV and sucking his thumb. And I looked at him, you know, and um, I realized, you know, blonde hair, little wisps, curls, and fat, chubby cheeks. And and I looked at him and I said to myself, you know what? This is the only person I know that doesn't have any enemies. He's the only one. Mm-hmm. And, and what has he done in life to deserve the kind of life that I was bringing him into? Because... When I came up and he, and he sat up, I was thinking about how I'm going to go after this guy. How am I, how am I going to go back and, and, um, you know, and whack him and f- yeah. find him and wait for him in the bushes and make sure I've got getaway cars and gasoline and, and, and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody knew I'd come. I had a reputation. I'd already done time for shooting a guy once. And, and so, you know, people knew, okay, Wallace is going to come for yeah, you. Yeah, don't fuck with you. Yep. And so... And I, and I looked at this little boy and I said to myself, okay, and I just for a moment, you know, you live very much in the present in those kinds of situations. And uh, by then I, you know, this was, I was in my mid-20s and I was addicted to all kinds of drugs. I mean, I would do anything, you know, uh, I never had to steal for it because I always dealt. Um, but I looked at him and I, I realized that, well, if, if I do go in, and I was prepared to do the time because that was just part of the deal. Um, you know, when you throw the dice like that, you know, flip the coin, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I looked at him and I realized that if I went inside, you know, there'd be all kinds of people chasing his mom. She was a really pretty gal. And mm-hmm. where would he be? Where would he get left behind? Where, how would he, you know, where would, where would his relationship with his father? But here he is sitting up on his dad. And I realized just at that moment that it fell to me that it was my job to protect him. Not as a quid pro quo thing that you work out on the street with somebody, but because that was the, he was relying on me. Mm-hmm. Just me. 
Yeah. Nobody else could be his father, just me. Mm-hmm. That was my role in life. And, um, you know, I just, I checked myself. It was first time in many, many years. And I realized that, um, you know, if, if all I ever did with my life was be a decent father to this little boy, then that would, that's how it would have to be. And the asshole who shot me would have to wait until another day to die. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, I said, this is it. We're, we're going to go in. We're going to get straightened out. And I made a decision for our family because my wife was just as strong as I was. Mm-hmm. And um, off I went. I got straightened out. I went to the Royal Ottawa. They kept refusing me. I had, uh, I had a red file there for violence. So they would never let me in. And finally, there was this short little doctor, Dr. Ahmed. She was about, oh man, four foot 11. And uh, she said, looked at my file and said, you know, this guy's been here two or three times asking for treatment and we keep turning him down because he's got violence on his record and nobody's ever taken a chance on him. She let me in. And um, I never looked back. I got straightened out. Uh, I went to a place called... And you were how old at that age? Oh, I was probably 30, 29. You know, I'd been on the street since I was 15. I put a good decade in there uh, mm-hmm. of uh, pretty hardcore. This is the thing, you know, you start out dealing hash in high school, but as you get yeah, older, <laughs> yeah, and it, when, when you're 21, 22, all of a sudden you're carrying guns and now it's bigger quantities and it's different chemicals and it's more, and it, now you, you fall right into this lifestyle of thugs and it gets more and more serious as you get older. So uh, I went back to school and um, talked my way into college. I didn't have a high school education, so I did some upgrading kept going to the um, the uh, directress and saying, listen, you got to let me into this behavioral science program. She kept saying, you don't have a high school. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do it. Don't worry. I'll take So finally, I went there about three times and I kept bringing her aptitude test saying that, uh, look, it says I should be either a psychologist or a prison guard, you know, or no, uh, um, a Brinks guard, uh, uh, just what my aptitude uh, mm-hmm. test would say. And so finally she said, I'll put you on the waiting list. But by then I had all the gals in the, in the admissions office. I was speaking French to them. It was a bilingual college. And so um, they all said, we'll put you right to the top. And they got me in. And I graduated first in my class uh, out of 90 kids. And, um, you know, went on to be, I was a counselor for a number of years and addictions and on and so forth. And, uh, and never looked back. And I'll tell you. The, you never looked back. You never, never had back. any relapses Well, at I all. did. I did, but it wasn't until the boy was gone. And here's what okay. happened. Because everybody I know, they have relapses here yeah. and there. And, and that's the I thing. Guess. It's the dope smoking. So here's what happened. When that boy was 18, on his 18th birthday, my you know, thing in life was that I, I was going to hang in there. No matter what happened, I was going to be that boy's father. When he was 18, I remember I had read somewhere that it costs 150, 200 grand to raise a child these days. So I went to him and I said to him, listen, Corey, I said, you're 18 now. You're a grown man. You can vote. I said, I'm going to forego the 150 grand, okay, <laughs> that I spent raising you, okay? All right? We're even. You don't owe me anything. Anything I do for you going forward, I will do based on moral persuasion, based on the fact that we have a relationship together, but not out of obligation anymore. I said, my duty as a father to you is done. I said, I've, I've brought you up and you're a man now. And he's listening to all this and he's got this puzzled look on his face. And finally, a little smile comes on his face. He says, looks, dad. He said, mom brought me to school. She fed me. She clothed me. I appreciate her. But everything I ever learned about life, everything I ever learned about people, everything I learned, ever learned about myself, I learned from you. And thank you. And he kissed me on both cheeks. That's so nice. 
That's awesome. Forget about it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've got I've got a a fifteen year old and a sixteen year old, mm. so yeah, that would uh, that would be amazing. <laughs> it, it was, and it's still you know fatherhood defined me up until then because here mm-hmm. I was coming from this you know sort of a shitty you know a, a depraved background. I mean, all kinds of terrible things happened. You know, I shot people. I got shot. You know, people died, and it's awful. It's terrible to live that mm-hmm. way. And um and but this little boy he made it to adulthood and and you know he's, he's thirty five and he you know yesterday I, or, or yes yesterday was the legalization day so I posted this thing about uh, how I have solved the riddle of addiction and of course he's the first guy on Facebook to argue with me you know so and he's thirty five and he just got married and when I married his mother I married her to stay out of prison because I thought well it'll look really good in front of the judge I had a court case coming yeah so I said when I sent her down in a snowstorm down to the family court to get the, the license. And then the day that we got married, I went with, we, we jumped in a cab and I went and picked up these two other junkies that we knew, couple, and we went down and they were our witnesses. And then we went home, probably shot heroin, and, <laughs> and that was it. And, and so that's, and, and then I had, and then I was married, so it would look for, good in front of a judge. Well, he, he was on one of those two-year visas to, uh, to Ireland where you can stay for a couple of years. And his visa was running out. So in order for him to stay in Europe, because he loves it there, him and his gal got married. So I'm looking at it like that's an improvement. Right? Yeah. I, I, married, I got married to stay out of prison. He's getting married to stay in the EU, in, in Ireland. That's, yeah. know, that's an improvement. I think that's, a, that's an incremental improvement. Who knows what the next generation will do? So, so how did you, because this is something, it, it actually came up last night on the dinner table. We were talking to our kids about this. Um, what are the actual, because we had a whole disagreement about this with people that were there and we were all chatting about this. What are the actual numbers on on how addictive is heroin in terms of how many people who do heroin end up addicted to it? And then how many people who have a, a serious sort of habit, how many of them um, successfully quit it? Because well, there are a lot of different uh, opinions at that table. and. Yeah. I was confused. You, you probably know about this. You're an well, addiction expert. So, Well, you know, I'm an addiction expert because I've been addicted to everything. I mean, <laughs> primarily, you know. Yeah. Um, but I also took all the addiction uh, foundation uh, courses in Toronto while I was in college. And then I took, I even studied at the University of Sherbrooke, uh, La Sexologie, La Toxicomane. So there... This is always a, a contentious issue because most people who will go on um, an opiate for painkilling, for example, will, will you know they'll quit it when they're done. Their pain's gone. They, they go off of it. There's only a very small percentage of people who um, wind up addicted. And you look at Portugal, who's legalized everything. Well, their rate of hardcore addiction fell, but it didn't go away. You know, it fell down to a to a, a much much smaller sort of percentage of the population. So, you know, it, it's, um, is it the drug? Is it, is, is it the, the, the person and so forth? I think there's some environment and some, um, I think it's mostly environmental. I think addiction is a learned behavior. And um, when, when I, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about that first, but the, I, I think to solve that riddle, here's the thing. If, if a guy goes home and he drinks every day, and heroin's a, a different sort of, kettle of fish if i can use a good newfoundland expression my mom <laughs> but heroin's a, a little bit a little bit different but they're all at their crux um 
have the same issue, and that is um, it, it's a call to narrow thinking. It's to take many thoughts and turn them into fewer thoughts. That's the relief that everybody thinks, everybody seeks uh, from any, any drug or alcohol use. You know, a guy goes to a bar on a Friday and you know, he's, got all his, he's got his boss, he's got his wife, he's got his bills, he's got his clients, he's got all his commitments, his children, whatever else, and then he has two or three beers and you know, he's thinking about his you know, pizza and pussy. You know, or, or maybe sports. You know, he's yeah. he's narrowed his thinking, and you know when you think of um, the, all that great work that's done on the zone in flow state. Yeah, you know, um, exactly. The guy with the long name like she this sent me high. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, long before he wrote that book or that book came out, uh, the zone has been the thing. You know, this is where it's a it's a confluence of your passions of your 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 talents, you know, that you've maybe worked on for a period of time, and even if you hadn't, but that's what, what you're aiming for, and your focus. And when you can get all three of those together and really sort of get into that zone, you, you stop time. It's the only way I know of stopping time. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, seven hours go by, and holy shit, what, what happened, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's where, and that's where we're ha- we are at our happiest, you know, when we're right in that zone and we're doing our thing and, and it's, it's our talents, it's our passions and so forth. And you're outside of time. You really yeah. are. Yeah. And, and I think that's what people are seeking when, um, when they use substances. And some, that's one part of it. And that's really that narrowing of thinking. And that counts for people who are process addictions, porn and gambling. I mean, there's uh, intermittent reinforcement. Those are very powerful. But again, it's, it's a narrowing of thinking, you know, overeating. I mean, you're not thinking about everything in the world when you're eating 12 donuts, you know, mm-hmm. Boston creams, you know. So, so that, that same sort of thing, that, and, and it can become compulsive. Now, you, you had a wonderful post the other day about... Um, somebody who is uh, teaching their boyfriend to, to ride a bike in a park. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What a lovely sight that I could imagine it, yeah. you know? Well, that guy, you know, as an adult, having not having learned to ride a bike is, um, is, is fairly rare. Mm-hmm. But if you hadn't ridden a bike for 10 or 15 years and, and you get on a bike today, uh, you'll ride it. No problem. You'll never forget yeah. it. And that's the level at which addiction is learned. It's learned at the striatum and pons, at the very, very basic basic centers of the mind, um, in, of the brainstem. And so it becomes automatic. And this is why guys who drank, you know, a 40-pounder rye and then they quit and they don't touch it for 10 years, they're right back on a 40-pounder rye because it's like riding a bike. Somebody, you know, relapses on heroin um, and, and, you know, they'll go right back to the level of use that they were at you know, very, very quickly, you know, same mm-hmm. thing with drinking. A guy's a, you know, drinks six beers every night and that's what he does when he says, well, maybe I can just do one or two. So when the learning becomes that deep, you'll go back, you tend to go back to that. It takes an enormous amount of uh, strength and willpower to avoid that. And so guys who learned it at that level are better off probably keeping it. But here's the other thing. Here's the riddle of addiction. So you've been in fear before, you've been afraid. Sure. So somebody cuts you off on the autoroute, and uh, it's snowing, and uh, you see there's an accident of head, and oh, oh, and so what'll happen right away? Your your blood pressure will go up, your heart rate will increase, you know, you may even feel it in your throat, your breathing will shallow, 
And the other thing is your thinking will narrow. And you'll find that one little spot where you can get around that mess in front of you in the snowstorm and just escape. This is the narrowing of thinking. And so, but now think of what happens when you drink. Same thing. Two beers, your heart rate's gone up. Your blood pressure. You see people drink for a long time. All the capillaries around their face here from from high blood pressure will will be uh, they'll be broken. And uh, so the same thing happens. You put yourself in Hutchinson and and um, another guy in '99 studied this and and put out studies on it. And I had to go around looking had to go around looking for studies that confirmed my suspicion. Um, and uh, Hutchins is, is one of them in 99 and where the fight or flight system is activated when you drink. And uh, so, huh. yeah, so because look what happens. Your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your, your breathing shallows, and your thinking narrows. Well, these are classic fight or flight symptoms. Well, same thing happens when you drink. Same thing happens when you smoke dope. Huh. All of those things. You put yourself. So everybody focuses on dopamine. Oh, it's the buzz. No, 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 no. What people are seeking to do is to put themselves into a physiological fear state so that they can narrow focus. Huh. That's what addiction is. That's what happens when people are addicted to stuff. They're using this as a vehicle to get them to narrow focus because that's the place that people feel good. This is the place where, where like as we just talked about, being in the zone and, and flow yeah. state and all this, this is where we're at our happiest and that's what they're seeking. However, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that well. You're like a dog chasing its tail. And even if you have two beers... And you spend the rest of the night drinking. Well, you're never going to get the buzz that you got off those two beers again. Rest mm-hmm. of the night, you just get worse and worse and worse until finally you're sitting there, you know, hammered, <laughs> looking to fight somebody <laughs> because you're in a fear state. Yeah. So there's a dis- disconnect. When you put yourself, you're physiologically into a fear state like that. Well, it, you keep doing that. You can do it here and there. It's, it's not going to be any great damage to you. But if you do it daily, well, over time, you can't be in a fear state and confident at the same time. Something has to go. Yeah. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Now you can you can you can parse this a little bit. You can you can slice and dice it, and you can you can say, well, you know, look at the guy who is an MMA fighter. He's afraid, but then he uses his courage, and and that fear helps him to he operates anyways. And so then confidence. Goes, well, he's operating from one to the other, back to the other, back to the other. He's vacillating. He's he's, he's rebounding from one feeling to the other because you can't feel two things at once. So. When you put yourself into a fear state like that long enough, well, after a time, your confidence wanes because just by virtue of the amount of time that you've kept your body physiologically in a fear state, so your confidence goes down. Well, if you do that long enough, it can become something called learned helplessness where confidence is seen as something that happens to other people, not necessarily in your life. And, um, and that's kind of a shame um, because confidence is kind of important. In fact, it's critical. Mm. Confidence is the stuff that takes thoughts and turns them into actions. So how many dope smokers do we know, I'm going to do this one day? Fucking never happens. <laughs> never happens. Actually, you know, I, I you know? definitely, I grew up in Verdun with lots of people like that, that, you know, they kind of sitting on the couch, kind of, yeah, when, yeah. when I get the money and never doing anything. But I also know a a a lot of people who are extremely successful Mm -hmm. and get a lot of shit done in the world and are really kind of highly motivated people who are who smoke or eat edibles every single day yeah yeah absolutely every single day yeah the (laughs) yeah and i like you know it, it 
yeah, there's, I mean, I, I won't name names. Well, it's legal now. I can't, but yeah. I know like uh, some very, very successful well, people, so including some people yeah. who've been on, on this podcast who are, who are stoners. Like, they're yeah. in the, they, you know, they're not, they're never so wasted that they're sitting there kind of incoherent in their right. own world. Right. They're always able to communicate with other people yeah. and to, uh, to do stuff that yeah. can be active. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, yeah, it, it seems to me I, I like your earlier thought, what you were saying about how it's it's mainly an environment thing. Because mm-hmm. when we were talking about heroin last night, uh, the uh, my I think it was my my wife was saying, oh well, the the rates of addiction are really really high for anybody who tries it. And this our friend Chris Murtog was uh, was over, and he said um, he said no, actually I've read that mm-hmm. uh, they're they're quite low, and in fact. A lot of the opioids that are um, prescription opioids, like Dilaudid, Dilaudid is like much more powerful than than even really great street heroin. Mm. And people are prescribed Dilaudid after operations; they break their leg, yeah. they you know, and they take a course of Dilaudid mm. for they take it for like two or three weeks for the pain, yeah, and then they go right off done. it, yeah, and they uh, and they actually. Uh, not only do they go off it, they experience for two or three days mm-hmm. withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. They have the sweats, yeah, little they cold, have, like and yeah, sniffles. They, and... They're like sneezing yeah. constantly. They're like like just constant yeah. post nasal. They have like full on withdrawal symptoms, yeah. and their doctors tell them, "Oh yeah, when you go off it, you'll have like some withdrawal symptoms. Uh, just don't worry about it. Yeah. Nothing's wrong with you. Take yeah. an Advil cold and sinus if it's really annoying." Yeah, and they're done mm-hmm. and they don't become addicted. So his point was like the same as yours. He said, clearly there's got to be something fucked up in your life. There's got to be something like that's missing in your life mm-hmm. that, that this is the puzzle piece that fits right in there. Right. Right. So right. if you, um, there has to be something about you. And this is actually, this view of addiction was, uh, is, is pretty old. This is the, the view of addiction that Freud had, mm-hmm. which was totally discredited mm-hmm. for decades. And now it seems like addiction studies seem to be coming back to it. But Freud said, um, you know, long ago, like a century ago, he said that um, people are uh, become addicted to particular substances because of who they are and what they're looking for. So he said people who are addicted uh, become addicted to opiates. Mm-hmm. Those are people who have like a, a problem in their connection with their mother they didn't properly they didn't properly kind of disconnect from from their mother mm-hmm. and so they are always trying to look f- they want to basically become they want to stop being a self mm-hmm. it's like i want to i want to just stop being me mm-hmm. you know like i wanted to sit on the couch and just totally zone out and just like i, I i'm sick of being me i don't mm-hmm. want to be me for tonight and they want to be like, uh, which he says also people who get really into Eastern mysticism and want to like meditate and like, I want to be like one with everything. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the same impulse yeah. that makes them do that. Yeah. And then he says like, there's other kinds of drugs like cocaine mm-hmm. and which he was addicted to for decades. He right. did massive amounts of coke. Right. Uh, he said there's cocaine. There's, um, I think he put like marijuana in that one, a couple of different. And he says those drugs have to do with a, a an incorrect connection to your break with your father, like mm-hmm. your relationship to your father. And so mm-hmm. what those drugs allow you to do is to sort of live in a world of your own creation, mm-hmm. like where you just have this like egomaniac kind of thing where mm-hmm. 
you just everything kind of makes sense according to your right. lights, right? Because because living in the actual complicated world that doesn't make sense and seems to be very unjust and very like fucked up, that's bugging you. And so you take this stuff mm-hmm. and suddenly like everything makes sense and you're, you know, you're yeah. like the loud guy in the bar. Like, right fixing all the world's problems and stuff like that so well i i i tend to agree with freud in that sense and that's and that's why i said heroin's a particular thing and i tend to think it's a return to the mother as well but just uh that thing about cannabis you know if you have a life that's set up like willie nelson smokes dope you know he's supposed to got the really good shit and a uh, very accomplished artist he can show up there night after night and do his thing woody harrelson's another big dope smoker very accomplished actor these guys are you know handle it really well so if you have a life that's set up and you have the habits and the systems around you that are going to propel you forward because that's what you've created, you can probably handle cannabis. It's probably not a, a detriment to you. You give it to a 16-year-old kid and then add in a couple of other things, You know, maybe not that much education, maybe not that much of a social grouping where, where that are, he's being you know, propelled forward by the people around him. You start adding that in, and um, boy, you can take the edge off of his passion very, very quickly, because you've he's he's narrowing his focus instead on of doing it on something that's worthwhile. He's narrowing it to something that's like a dog chasing its tail. He's using fear, a, a physiological fear state, to really just to to stay the same, and just to 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 create an artificial zone instead of a real zone. And, you know, it was, um, you're a Nietzsche fan. I think it was Nietzsche who said that, you know, uh, geez, I should get my quote. Uh, Nietzsche said something really wonderful about that, you know, everything that you know comes from your senses. So as soon as you compromise your sensory inputs, well, the brain now has to um, guess what's going on. Well, as soon as you do that, there's a lack of confidence. Now, there could be some creativity in that, too. Yeah. You could be like, okay, I can disconnect here. And You know what I thought of last night when I was smoking? Well, I hope you fucking wrote it down because tomorrow <laughs> morning you're probably not going to remember it. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. what happens. So cannabis, to me, I'm happy that it was legalized. I have a huge chunk of hash right in my pocket. I'm carrying it around. Uh, it was 46 <laughs> years since the Ladane Commission. I don't know how you all, but when I was 15, the Ladane Commission came out. And, uh, and uh, I'm carrying this around just thinking, wow, man, I can just do this now. And I, I don't smoke it anymore. <laughs> but I'm carrying it around. And I, I made this for a friend of mine. And, and uh, anyways, I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the, mm. so cannabis to me is a little bit of a different animal in the sense that look, it's milder than other. Can you say the same thing about alcohol? Well, there's a lot of great writers who were alcoholics, who were big drinkers. And the newspaper business was, you know, uh, rife with guys who were, you know, that they drank whiskey and wrote, mm-hmm. you know. So... So, you know, so there's a, there's a, a difficult thing in there, but it, it comes down to the susceptibility. And I think that, you know, y- you talk to the trauma guys and they'll say, well, why is, why is addiction so high in the, in the First Nations community? You know, uh, Portugal legalized everything. The level of addiction dropped, but it didn't go away. It sort of stayed. So after years and years of working with people, I think that there's probably... A ten, very unscientific. Very, just my estimate. Probably fifteen percent of people are are wired that way, where they're susceptible to it. And you think to yourself, well, why would Mother Nature make some people um, more vigilant, more more hyper vigilant, more more receptive to fear like that? And for those people, when they feel fear, they meet fear at a completely different level than other people. 
when they feel fear, they actually move towards it instead of away from it. These are the guys, you send them into a war, they come back either dead or, or with a chest full of metals. Mm-hmm. These are the guys that maybe the tribe, you know, 500 years ago, the chief would assign them the duty of going to scout out to see where the bad guys were or to watch the perimeter. They would have been the trusted people because they were a little bit more vigilant. And so I think those people... It, what's, have, what's his name? Calls it the warrior gene. Yeah, maybe. He, he's the one. I think he has the theory that it's... It's this thing called the warrior gene, and he's done. Re- I'm blanking on his name. Mm-hmm. He's the one I'm who like familiar with him. he studies like psychopaths and okay. sociopaths, and he right. he uh, is really into that. And then he he wanted to see if there was like a genetic component, and mm-hmm. so he studied his own like a bunch of other people, and, and right. including his own kind of. Uh, code and stuff like right. that and he found that he had it right and so then he did some oh hang research. on i met this I, yeah, I, I did, this is the yeah this is the the guy that that was for psycho psycho uh, uh, psychopathy uh, but he I says think. that part of what yeah i is, remember is hearing an interview with him a very high um a, a very what is it they have a very high threshold for excitement yeah so they need kind of huge thrills right. Right. in order to just feel a little bit of a buzz and so that's why they are the kind of people who are like jumping out of planes you know doing like skydiving and bungee mm-hmm. jumping and they're skiing down like black triple black diamonds or they're becoming like mm-hmm. drug dealers and getting shot with crossbows or they're doing uh, engaging in high risk activities mm-hmm. because it takes a lot of excitement for yeah. them to get like to feel a it. buzz that yeah. most people get yeah. from watching a, a scary movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, like yeah, and and I think there's something to that for sure. You know, um, um, pro- probably I think 15%. And those people too, don't forget. Now you'll see somebody, we don't let kids cry it out in the crib anymore. We don't let them do that anymore. When I was a baby, you, you know, I, the back of my head's all flat. The, the kid before we uh, died, the one just before that was sickly, I think bronchitis, and the one after me was sickly. So mom had to spend a lot of time on those two kids. So I was, I was a nine-pound, 10-ounce baby. We left it cried out in the crib. So we don't do that anymore. There's a reason for that. You know, Harvard's done some great studies on this, and we know that kids who are um, traumatized, and it can be pre-memory, um, if fear becomes imprinted upon your soul at a very very young age you'll tend to seek it out later on in life and maybe some of those people depending on the environment become psychopaths some become antisocial some become drug addicted mm-hmm. um so th- so i think there's something to that and it's this is the the science isn't on it isn't definitive by any means but there's, we suspect because we see how high it is, the prevalence in, is in First Nations and in groups that are, have been traumatized or have been um, you know, marginalized, we see addiction higher in those areas. So I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that's, that's um, you know, I think somebody who doesn't have that sort of background can probably handle addiction much, much better than somebody who doesn't. Mm-hmm. But for some people, um, that learning, they're really good at learning that. And, and that bicycle thing where, you know, it never goes away. Well, it becomes part of their, and they, they become paradoxically fear seekers. They seek it. And even when they get straight, they cause shit. Mm-hmm. Start arguments with people. Yeah. They're always getting fired. They're fighting with their boss. Uh, and, and I have people that say to me, well, why is it my sister-in-law hasn't drank for 10 years and she still causes freaking shit all <laughs> over the place? She was a chronic alcoholic before yeah. that. You know, as a matter of fact, I was just uh, getting a license. I was at the license bureau just about two weeks ago. I met this lovely lady. She was 78 years old. It, it left her husband years ago. 
I give her the riddle of addiction. She goes, holy shit, you're right. I, I, that's him. And then she says, but what about my sister-in-law? And she gives me this example. And I said, she's still seeking fear. And if she can't find fear somehow, she'll create it because that helps her to narrow focus and that gives her relief. And that's mm. what she's doing. Because if, you, if you're fighting with somebody, you're not worrying about everything else. You know, yeah. So there, I think there's a, a, a percentage of the population that are, and I. That's why I think Portugal's level of addiction didn't disappear. It just dropped, and it's that there's that kind of that type of person. You know, I I don't call it an addictive personality. I think that's you know you, you, the science on that is unclear, but I do think that there's there's some truth to that. I, yeah. I do think it is. Well, I think it's a lot of it has to do with us. You know, to go back to your earlier point, saying that. We want to experience uh, things that are are vital and exciting and mm-hmm. real. Like we yeah. want to feel like this particular moment is a moment outside of time, and like we are having a, a, a near life experience right now. Like this is actually mm-hmm. like happening. And some people they they come to that by experiencing joy, right, or experiencing uh, what what they the psychologist Jonathan Hyde calls elevation, right? Mm-hmm. They experience it through an experience of the sacred, mm-hmm. whether it be through, you know, going into like a beautiful cathedral and smelling yeah. the incense and the, awe the, and, the grandeur, that yeah. awe of that sacred, or maybe right. they get it from, uh, from going hiking with their dad in the woods and like yeah. seeing the grandeur of like all the shit and like the moose and all that. Oh my God. Yeah, that kind of feeling of, of grandeur and awe. Right, so there's there's many different ways that you can have that feeling of transcendence, right? But mm-hmm. one of the ways, I mean, we both know this is true. Yeah. One of the ways that you feel transcendence mm-hmm. is through fear. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember my my wife and I got into a horrible car accident once in like northern New York State. You know, like up around uh, the lake where it's just like crazy snowstorms out of okay. the blue. Like it'll be like you know, 10, 20 feet more than, you know, everywhere else. It's insane. Right. We got into a really bad uh, car accident there. Car was completely totaled. Windshield ripped right off. But miraculously, we somehow survived. All of our uh, all of our luggage was strewn all over the highway. Wow. Car was a crumpled up tin head. Yeah. We somehow were fine. Yeah. Right? And I remember after, you know, we filled out all the report with the state trooper and stuff like that, they... Uh, the state trooper, she drove us to like a motel where we could like stay for the night. We immediately like went across the street to the restaurant, ordered the nicest thing on the menu. <laughs> it's like, you know, Northern mm-hmm. New York state. And we went back and had like, you know, mad sex the entire night. We had like such an sure. amazing time. Sure. And it was because that kind of that fear sure. and that extreme near death yep. experience that is it's, um, it's terrifying, but you also feel completely alive and you feel it's very affirmative, right? So I can understand if because of you had like a fucked up childhood or something like that, if the only way that you ever felt transcendence mm-hmm. was through fear, yeah. was being like, you know, beaten or humiliated yeah. or scared, yeah. then uh, you would look to experiences yeah. like that because that's the only way that you know yeah. how to experience exactly. transcendence. Yeah, I was right? afraid, I survived. And it and was so, a rush. And, and, and yeah. yes, and, and somehow I, I, the next morning woke up and daybreak came and I was still here. And it was the most beautiful and, sunrise and, ever. And, yeah. so, and, and, so I, and I think there's some truth to that. You know, um, I, I, I really believe that the, the um, 
you know, that the the whole, and I don't like to use the word trauma because it's it's thrown away or thrown around too carelessly. So that everybody's got trauma. You know, every every family has been. Uh, you know, it's got its challenges and on and so forth. But I think a, uh, there's people who are sensitive to it. Um, and I think that that makes them more more susceptible to addiction. And if they find themselves using and and, um, and on and so forth, that uh, there's a good chance that they'll fall into it. And it's pretty clear that, um, um, you know, Harvard Harvard has studied that pretty pretty in depth and uh, and so we know that those are precursors you know yeah. now heroin's a different story heroin i i agree with freud and 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 i came to that conclusion just on my own because when a person is shooting heroin and i shot it for a number of years i can't believe you did that and like lived yeah. to tell yeah. <laughs> got away for from about it. 10 That's years amazing. yeah and and uh you know send my girlfriend to europe to bring it back and and uh, you know but with heroin what you're doing when you when you're shooting heroin you're you're shutting down and you're going back into the womb almost mm-hmm. because when you're not out it's not like you're having these vivid you know lucid dreams or anything like that you're you're back bercy comme un bébé you know yeah. like you're 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 being rocked like a little baby again and and you're just stopped so talk about narrowing focus you've narrowed your focus not only and then you've shut out the light too because you've yeah. you're not out and so you're i think you are you're right back into the womb yeah. So I think it is a I think it is a return to mother. Yeah, I um, a friend of mine. I've never actually done heroin. I've done pretty much everything else, but I've never done heroin. But I, a friend of mine who is actually a very, uh, you know, is high government official at the moment. But he said at one point he wanted to try it. He was actually in the in um, not uh, in Hull. Oh yeah, yeah. But uh, he said he wanted to like try it and. But he wanted to make sure that he didn't have like an opportunity to do it again. Right. Right. And so right. what he what he did is he had a friend, like so he, he got it through a friend so that he wouldn't have a direct connect. Right. Right. And he was in a safe environment. He made sure it was like a, a good environment. He had yeah. like a friend, and he and he shot it, and he described it to me like in detail, and he said. It was one of the most amazing experiences of his entire life. He said it's uh, it's like nothing else. And he said it was amazing. And he, but he described it. The reason why I thought of it is because he said exactly the same thing as you. He said it's like you feel like you're back in your mother's womb. Yeah. You're just like it's yeah. so uh, safe and warm and yeah. like. And he goes, I can totally understand. He goes, like I have a loving family and I have like a, a great girlfriend well now his wife but like uh, he he said i have a great life so i get a feeling of warmth and safety often Mm -hmm. so for me that was like oh that's a really great experience but it's basically just an extreme version of something i experience on a regular basis because Mm -hmm. i imagine if you never feel that right it must be like you know a crazy trip i wanted to read you this i wanted to read you something because it um it completely it, it just, it, you, what you said just it really made me think of it. But so this is a, a my favorite poem by the poet Tony Hoagland. Okay, and uh, he's uh, he's just absolutely amazing. It's called Sweet Ruin, and I think it fits very much into what you were just saying. It says maybe that is what he was after, my father, when he arranged ten years ago to be discovered in a mobile home with a woman named Roxanne an attractive, recently divorced masseuse. 
He sat there, he said later, in the middle of a red imitation leather sofa with his shoes off and a whiskey in his hand, filling up with a joyful kind of dread, like a swamp filling up with night, while my mother hammered on the trailer door with a muddy, pried-up stone, then smashed the headlights of his car, drove home, and locked herself inside. He paid the piper, was how he put it, because he wanted to live, and at the time knew no other way than to behave like some blind and willful beast, to make a huge mistake, like a big leap into space, as if following a music that required dissonance and a plunge into the dark. That is what he tried to tell me the afternoon we talked. As he reclined in his black chair, divorced from the people in his story by ten years and a heavy cloud of smoke, trying to explain how a man could come to a place where he has nothing else to gain unless he loses everything. So he louses up his work, his love, his own heart. He hails disaster like a cab. And years later, when the storm has descended and rubbed his face in the mud of himself, he stands again and looks around, strangely thankful just to be alive, oddly jubilant, as if he had been granted the answer to his riddle, or as if the question had been taken back. Perhaps a wind is freshening the grass, and he can see now, as for the first time, the softness of the air between the blades, the pleasure built into a single bending leaf. Maybe then he calls it, in a low voice and only to himself, sweet ruin. And maybe only because I am his son, I can hear exactly what he means. How even at this moment, even when the world seems so perfectly arranged, I feel a force prepared to take it back, like a smudge on the horizon, like a black spot on the heart. How one day soon I might take this nervous paradise, bone and muscle of this extraordinary life, and with one deliberate gesture, like a man stepping on a stick, break it into halves, but less gracefully than that. I think there must be something wrong with me, or wrong with strength, that I would break my happiness apart simply for the pleasure of the sound, the sound the pieces make. What is wrong with peace? I couldn't say, but sweet ruin, I can hear you. There is always the desire, always the cloud, suddenly present and willing to oblige. It's, I've never in my life, like from psychologists, from philosophers, from like, from anybody, I've never in my life heard a more chillingly accurate description of what self-destructive behavior is all about sure. than from that poem. Like, sure. I remember reading being like, oh my God, <laughs> like mm -hmm. how, you know, it, it's just this, this insane almost like nihilistic thrill seeking mm -hmm. right and it fits mm -hmm. exactly into your your theory like mm -hmm. the riddle of addiction if it's per it's that, that that it's just you know his dad completely ruining his life not because his yeah. life was bad right. his life was great it's just boring
it's it's like that asshole in Notes from the Underground. Yeah, <laughs> the underground man, yeah. <laughs> you know, which drove me nuts a little bit reading because, um, you know. You related? Uh, well, <laughs> fuck yeah. And, and, it, and it really pissed me off. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I promised my friends I'd read it. So finally I read this wonderful work. And, and you know, for what it does, it's a, you know, he, he does it really well. Yeah. But it's not pleasant. You know, it's not entertaining to me. Uh, I've been in, in that space between the, the rafters and the floorboards. Uh, you know, uh, I existed there for a period of time in life, and I know many people who've visited there as well. And so for me, it was uh, was tedious to read for that reason. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't um, particularly enjoy it, even though I appreciate the, the literary aspect of it. Um, you know, it was, um, I would have rather read something else, to tell you the truth. <laughs> a little you know? too close to home. Yeah, yeah, you know, and my, and I got great, you know, uh, scolding from one of my old managers out on the West Coast, Alex, who j- just loves uh, Dostoevsky's work and um, the brothers and on and so forth. Um, and, uh, he, you know, gave me heck about it. You know, he said, no, no, you're missing the point. I'm not fucking missing the point, but yeah. I lived it. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's no, why I, I know. It's you know, the same you know? thing. It's like so, I, gave, uh, yeah. I gave this guy... That I met when I was traveling around in my my late teens, early twenties. I met this guy from Labrador, a newfie from Labrador. Right. And he I was like he said, What are you reading? And I was reading James Joyce's Dubliners. Right. And uh, and he he said, What's it about? And so I said, Well, it's about these people and they're all kind of disappointed and pissed off about everything and they're kind of like <laughs> and everything. And so he said, Oh he said, It's good and I said, Yeah, it's great. He took it. He got so angry reading that book. <laughs> he threw it through a window. Wow. He, oh. It really made him angry. He goes, this is basically like total description of yeah. where I live. <laughs> yeah, there so you go. Imagine that with like an unbelievably yeah. thick no- Labrador accent. Exactly. Nothing new to him there. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He found it very depressing and upsetting because he said, this is like my life. Yeah. You know, this is like where I, this yeah. is the place I'm trying to get away from. Right. Right? But So what what's going on with men? I mean, what is going on with like... You, well, this is you do so much work on this. I, like, well, what is this, up with the, men I, and I, boys I, these days? When I was a uh, when I was a counselor in the in the um, late eighties, early nineties, I used to call myself a counselor, and I used to scare guys off. So that then I'd say, well, look at I'm just like a coach. You know, you, you played baseball, you played football, whatever. So I'm like your coach. But now there's a fucking coach for everything. So mm-hmm. guys are onto it. Oh, coach, you know. So I don't want to call myself a coach anymore. So I call myself the advisor to men, and I like to teach just as much as I like to counsel. Uh, so I think that gives me a, and, and men, um, you know, they're busy, man. They, they, they've usually got responsibilities. They've got to take on, they've got all kinds of stuff that they have to look after. So, uh, I think being an advisor is a good idea. So yeah, I, I try to help guys find their power. Many people, uh, many guys will, will forget. And, and especially in this day and age, as if power is a bad thing, it's not a bad thing. It's no, just, not at all. So what I believe, you know, my little sort of elevator minute talk is that if a man can recognize and then and harness and grow his power in service of himself and those around him he'll create a life of meaning and and this is what sets him free this is what sets him free from the tyranny of his existence so this is what i teach men that's at it, at the, 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 the at its basic sort of level that's what i believe is um is the right sort of attitude to have when you approach life and then of course you know there's all the gender stuff and the feminism and and, and um we live in a different world than we lived in before so um you know and we're supposed to mm-hmm. uh, you know my generation is is um one thing my next generation should be an improvement 
And um, so that's, that's basically what I do. And addiction is part of that. So I think on the addiction thing, I, I think if people can recognize that they're probably using as a way to put their body into a fear state because it serves some purpose that way, but you have to be careful because how much, how long, how much of your life are you spending that way? And here's a really good, and I know you like this Nietzsche guy, that, that <laughs> troublemaker, the guy who ruined Christianity. <laughs> so, all credibility, all good conscience, all evidence of truth comes only from the senses. We compromise our sensory inputs and then it's a complete game changer you know you're in that basement and uh you know after in high school there's always the cool parent you know that 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 lets everybody come down and hang out in the garage or in the basement and you know everybody gets ripped out of their trees and then it's like you're looking at the guy's cat hey man do you think that cat knows we're stoned dude (laughs) well you're you're your sensory inputs are all haywire. Well, the brain relies on those kind of, you know, in interoception, yeah. exteroception as well. But, you know, it sort of relies on that to give you the truth about the world so that it can make good decisions, make good, you know, and, and it'll do so predictively. So if you spend a lot of your time uh, compromised that way, well, there has to be a, a corresponding decrease in confidence. has to be, you know. Um, you can still stumble through life, but here's here's the bullshit. So... You know, I, I try to tell guys that there was 40 to 200 million sperm in the ejaculate that created you. Half of them were male and half of them, you could have been a girl, for crying out loud. You know, you could have been all kinds of different traits. But no, no, the universe, in its infinite wisdom, chose you. You made it to the egg. You won that race out of millions of possibilities. You won the race. And so you made it to the egg first. And your prize was a life, right? So do you want to live that life in fear, or do you want to live that life in confidence? That's the choice. Yeah. So if you're going to constantly put yourself into a fear state, and you're going to use that as uh, as an excuse not to move forward, and, and well, you'll be like a dog chasing its tail. And, and here's the bullshit that happens to young guys, and, and, and it happens to older, middle-aged guys. All of a sudden, 20 years go by. 20 years go by, John. And then they can look back and they say, well, did I just live 20 years? Or did I live a version of one year 20 times? Oh, God. And, yeah, I and exactly isn't that the bullshit? Yeah. And that's absolutely heartbreaking. When you think of the amount of time that we have on the planet to do our thing, and we think of the... And it's not just the gift and the prize of life. It, it's, it's not that, oh, what should I do with my life? It's what you owe. Because you were chosen. You won that race. So what have you got in you? And it, you know now you can quote endless scholars down through Rumi, don't die with that ruby red inside you, failing to you know you can go on and on and on about it. And, and that's a, a big thing you'll see in the you know everybody make the most of every day and on this, well just even and and there's another one I think it's Horace Mann who says this too. That's a, another beautiful quote that I heard somebody say the other day. And, and uh, what did he say? He said, Horace Mann, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for mankind. Fuck off. <laughs> right? It's a pretty high bar. Be yeah. ashamed. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is somewhere, you know? And so that, to me, is what I try to get across to people. And then there's a whole, uh, you know, sort of negotiating the genders is kind of important. Yeah. Um, because uh, women don't like weak men. They don't like them. Uh, they, they, they don't tolerate them very well. Women are very practical. There's a reason why men are the poets, men are the romantics in life, because we had that love for mom. See, she's trying to replace mother and become a mother. 
we're still trying to hang on to that that Madonna. And I think Nietzsche's got a great quote about that too. I don't have it here, but I think he says that in every man there's a this perfect image of, of, of a mother inside of him, the Madonna. So, and I think that, you know, I think a, a lot of that is men have this silly ideal of this utopian love um, that may not exist. Yeah. You know? Well, the, the whole weak men thing, I, I find one thing that I've noticed, I, you know, it, it at least three times just in the last six months with like people that I know is uh, you'll have a, a certain kind of, a certain kind of woman, which is a kind of woman that I, I tend to really like. And like, you know, I have a lot of my friends are like this. I, I like them a lot. So like a very kind of strong type a type person who's got like a lot of energy and takes up a lot of kind of presence in a room and they're very smart and they're very accomplished in different ways and stuff like that. And they want, uh, they want like uh, to be with, and this is, I'm talking straight women like this. So, and they want to be with a guy who is totally okay with them being successful and then being kind of opinionated and strong and stuff like that. And so they very often end up in relationships with these guys who sort of say all of these sort of feminist principles. They like talk a really good game, right? But usually, um, what they actually are is is very kind of low energy, uh, like weak uh, people who lack a lot of like ambition and drive and stuff like that. And they they sort of put this, and we we have we know one guy is like the worst example of this. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about Sebastian. Uh, but like, and they talk this really good. So anyway, so they get together with these guys because. They have, a, they agree with their politics, and they both kind of have a lot of alignment. But very quickly in the relationship, things start to deteriorate because although they they like this guy in theory, in practice, uh, they're not attracted to him at all. They mm-hmm. don't want to jump his, exactly. you know, jump on his dick at all. No. <laughs> so they're not like they're not attracted yeah. to him. Yeah. And then once again, from his end, in theory, he's really attracted to this like strong person. But in fact, because he's so weak, he feels incredibly intimidated by this person mm-hmm. and feels uh, and is kind of resentful mm-hmm. of their kind of drive and energy and things like that. And, mm-hmm. and so he's also like, you know, like is not. And so the relationship falls apart. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, this one friend of mine in particular, she just goes right again and like meets another guy. Uh, and starts and it's exactly rinse and repeat. Same pattern. Right? Yeah. And I remember I said to her, I said, "Why don't you like? Why don't you go for a guy that challenges you a little bit on your like?" Because she met this one yeah. guy and she was incredibly attracted to him, and he was like, they got along really, really, really well. And uh, he is trilingual in exactly the same way she is. They could like speak mm-hmm. different languages to each other. They they had all these like great things. But then he said, I like Jordan Peterson. And she mm. was like, fuck this. There's no way I could be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and he also said, yeah, I don't know about that. Like, so, and he said like some stuff. I mean, he he was not in any way a knuckle-dragging like, you know, yeah. idiot. He yeah, wasn't yeah. like like some yeah. like, fuck, women yeah. should be in the hole. Well, she's got rules. But, you know? but because he just actually had a little bit of a backbone yeah. to like push back and say yeah. like, no, I have opinion. I have an opinion too. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm a mm-hmm. grown adult like you and I can have a fucking, I don't, don't yeah. tell me to shut up. Right. Like, right. I can have an opinion too. Right. And 
<laughs> she it was like, I'm not going to see this guy again. Yeah. And so, surprise, surprise, a month later, she's with another doormat, yeah. like drippy, low so energy she's, guy. She's in her who masculine. she's going to like yeah. not want to be with. Yeah. And, and typically, you find gals who are 90% of women are feminine. At their core, they're feminine gals. I mean, some women are a little more masculine energy in them and on and so forth. Um, but you, if a gal is sort of feminine and and she winds up with a, a, um, a man who's also feminine, well, that's not going to work. She needs a, a masculine man. She needs a guy. So he she needs he needs a, she ne- she needs a guy who will help her be feminine and be less masculine because that's hmm. the natural order of things. Here's what happens. So you get these, you know. Women are the more precious of the two species. I remember there was a, a UBC um, a gal out there. She wrote, a, and I should have bought it at the time. I meant to order it, and I was listening, uh, fought, you know, listening to one. I like the CBC only for their um, uh, their information programs, like uh, um, ideas and stuff like that. But anyways, she, she had done this study of most of the animal kingdom, and uh, and that w- the the female is much more precious generally because it's the progenitor of the the species and on and so forth. You look outside at your bird feeder, you got a bright red male cardinal, and you have the female who's got buff color, just a little bit of red on her because if a sparrow hawk comes down, he's going to go for the male and, and she'll survive. So this is true in most species, and it's certainly true in ours. A woman can, you know, give birth viably without much risk between 15 and 35 after that every year that goes up her 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 risk ratio goes higher and higher whereas a man on his end can can father children there's a farmer in rajasthan you know in 2007 he fathered a uh, a little baby girl very healthy with his fourth wife he was 90 years old oh 90 God. so it's <laughs> not the same you know it's That's not crazy. the same women are far more precious and so when a gal is ready to choose a man generally when she's a young gal she when she's ready she will she will self assess up against her peer group and then she'll say okay and she'll give herself a number mentally sort of or emotionally in the back of her mind and then she'll look around I'm at 7.6 yeah, yeah and she'll yeah something <laughs> like that and they'll look around and they'll see the available men and she'll and then she'll go and present herself in front of that guy and you know touch her hair and look at him this way coyly laugh at his jokes and and uh, and so women choose and men acquiesce men give in and, and so it makes it seem like he's choosing but really she's making the choice so then she spends now if they couple and they get together then she spends the next 20 years wondering if she chose right because women think with both sides of the hemisphere they're great have greater intuition they usually have you put a 25 year old girl and a 25 year old guy in the same room and have an argument she'll talk circles around them okay they're far better at that thing guys and they mature quicker than we do and so but they, if there was a fault, and, and I can't get by with good women in my life. I've had, I mean, there's that law in California where they want to put a woman on every board there. I'm not even opposed to that because having good counsel from good, strong women, probably a good fucking idea, you know? Um, but, but, and I've had situations in my life where I've had confidants who were women, uh, you know, in, in business, absolutely critical. They dot the I, uh, dot the I's, cross the T's for you, man. They're just amazing. But, if there was a fault that generally you could ascribe to them is that they tend to overthink. They tend to go a little bit further. And you get a gal who's like 40, 50 years old and she's fairly self-aware and you say, do, do women overthink? Fuck yeah, we drive ourselves nuts, she'll tell you, <laughs> right? You know, it's so true, you know? So they tend to need a strong man who can show up powerfully for them every day so that when 
she's at the brink of her insanity, he can pull her back and say, no, woman, hang on a minute. We're not going there. We're not going that far. We don't need to do that. I'll give you an example. Two days ago, I, I catch a skunk at my house. I got a skunk oh underneath God. my garage. So I'm a guy. So How did you catch a skunk? So, so this is what I do. I went to YouTube, right? I looked. Oh, this is what you do. What the, you, so I get a cage, put it there. Three nights, the fucker gets in there, gets the chicken, and takes off. Oh, my God. No, two nights. Third night, now the, I go to the missus. I said, twice he's beat me. She says, well, you're putting the meat right above the plate? Put it way at the back of the cage. My missus tells me, yeah. to put it way at the back. She's never caught skunks before. Put it way at the back. That way you'll have to play around on that pressure plate, and that'll make the cage go on. I said, brilliant. Yeah. You know? So third time I do it, sure enough, next morning there's a skunk there. Now I got to get rid of it. <laughs> right? I don't want to put him in the back of my truck in case he lets go. Yeah. So I put him on a trailer. Anyways, I'm gonna, I get him all in there, and I approach him with a, uh, with a, uh, a tarp so that he can't see me because apparently if they can't see you, they won't spray. Wow. Put a tarp over it, get a, garbage, get a big garbage bag over it, got them all wrapped up, put them in the back of my trailer, hook the trailer onto the back of my truck, strap it in so they can't go anywhere. And then the missus is like all excited. She said, well, she's showering and I'm doing all this in the driveway. She says, wait for me and I'll come with you. So I take her off and off we go and we're looking for a forest, but we want to keep it fairly far away. But we know on a nice place for the skunk. The skunk's a beautiful animal. Oh, they I, are. I, They're I remember, gorgeous. Yeah. I remember I had a, a drug dealer friend of mine who way back in the 70s who had one as a pet because they the mother had been run over and they found the babies and they brought it to a vet. Aren't and the babies all, adorable? Oh, Gorgeous little God, And anyways, so he had adorable. it as a pet. And it was better than a cat, you know, so... And uh, anyways, um, so did he get the glands removed? They had all the glands okay, and yeah. back when you could still do that. I guess I don't. Maybe they don't do it anymore. Yeah. But uh, but then you could under the table. You can still get vets that'll do it. Yeah, yeah. And so anyways, but anyways, I'm taking her off now. She's starting to. Uh, well, you're going pretty far. You're going to this, and I said, look, we're gone this far. I had bales of hay, and I was bringing them to Rockland to bring to a customer. And I said, look, I'm I'm out this far anyways. I might as well go all the way to Rockland, drop off these bales of hay for this customer. And uh, so now she's starting to yank her, uh, hammer at me, just this and that and this. Well, what about this? And she has a girl who's showing up at our house at 1130 to look after our chickens because I, I live on a farm with chickens and rabbits and all of it. And she's going to be there at 1130. You're not going to be there. And I said, I'll get you back on time. Don't worry. Text her. So she's nattering. So then I realized she's got an appointment in the afternoon. I got a little boy with a heart aneurysm and uh, some heart issues with him. And he's only got one kidney. He's got some challenges. So... I realized that she's got that appointment later on in the afternoon. She's and I'm saying to her, listen, why don't you just enjoy the drive? Just come with me and just like, you know, just relish the moment, man. We're on this little adventure to release this skunk and on and so forth. And I finally had to just say to her, look, it, stop it, just stop it. And so she thought about it a minute. She texted the girl for the chickens. And she, oh yeah, she says we can be late. And really, what it was is she was worried about her afternoon appointment. Mm-hmm. And so she's overthinking things and she's getting to the point where all of that's bothering her. So, but I step in and I say, look it, stop it. We're on this adventure. We're going to have fun doing this. 10 minutes go by. She doesn't say anything. Maybe five minutes. She says, thanks for that. You know, and she needs that. You know, she needs somebody who can say to her, listen, you know, don't lose it here. Don't get so carried away and overthink things so that it's all a big disaster. Les femmes veulent faire des poules, mais elles préfèrent un coq. <laughs> okay? This rules my life. Women will yeah, try just, to... Just for, uh, for those of our listeners yeah. who don't speak French, uh, women, women like chicken, but they prefer cock. No, uh, rooster. They, 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 like. will, they will turn you into a hen, <laughs> oh, t- <laughs> but they prefer a rooster. They prefer... You can call it cock if you want, but yeah, I say like. rooster. 
to be polite, you know? Because otherwise, everybody yeah, goes, ah, ha, ha, you know? So then this is what women do. They will try to turn you into a hen, you know? So you must, you must establish yourself. And it's your Lennon Corden song the other day, Men Lead, Women Command. A lot of yeah, truth to that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of truth to that. So then you get Sherry Cohen's study in, in, at Harvard where she takes 156 couples on and so forth and she finds out what upsets them and, and then she puts brain, the, the FR, F, F, uh, MRI on them and does this brain scan. Well, women, when they see their partners upset, that activates the areas of the brain that are associated with happiness. Men, on the other hand, well, we, we see a, it, it doesn't work like that for men. We're different. What we like is we see a woman, we see what makes her happy, and then we try to repeat it. So happy life, uh, happy wife, happy life. There's a lot of truth to that for men. So, that, so you'd think, well, men are more reasonable in that situation. Well, they are, okay, <laughs> because it's a drag when you try to upset people all the time. And, and Sherry Cohen says, well, they're, they're looking for connection. It's a way for the woman to test whether or not you're vested in the relationship if she can see you upset. Well, it's a little tedious, you know, and it can be annoying. So men need to understand that. Men need to uh, and, and not be intimidated by that. That's just how they're made. And there's probably a goddamn good reason. Mother Nature, who, who we're not going to question her. We're going to say, well, there's probably a damn good reason why women are like that. And so let's just go with it. Let's just understand that and, and not start to get political about it. And just understand that's how women are. They But you need to be a rooster for her. Yeah. Because that's what I, she really I've, wants. I'm not sure. I definitely think there's, there's, you know, some underlying kind of sexual dynamic are there and is part of it. But I think there's something kind of deeper going on that is, that is not so much linked to, uh, to being a man or being a woman. Because one thing I've noticed, which fascinates me, is that if I look at like uh, the gay guys I know that are, like couples sure. that have been together, you know, two dudes that have been together for like a long time, or the lesbian couples I know, uh, two of our good friends, lesbian couple, they live uh, two blocks away from us, and they've got two girls, we've got two boys, and they've they've grown up together. One thing I've noticed that happens uh, with with gay couples, with lesbian couples, is that almost almost naturally it just seems like one of them ends up taking on yep. uh, the role of being what we would say is being like male but clearly if it can happen all over the place then mm -hmm. maybe we're talking about something mm -hmm. that's that's deeper than that because one of them will tend to be like more conscientious a little more kind of neurotic and, and worrying about keeping the schedule one will be more nurturing yeah one will be uh more kind of calm and mm -hmm. more like oh come on you know let them go on the the let them climb the tree that's fine don't yeah. worry about it right? right and like let them like let them do dangerous activities and one will be and it seems to me like with each of them s sort of taking on different kinds of roles and and championing certain virtues human virtues together what they make is something that is beautiful and is balanced, exactly. yes. right? And so the kids get something that's balanced. But I've never, I mean, maybe it exists, but I've never in my life seen a couple, whether it be a straight couple or a gay couple or lesbian, I've never seen a couple where the two of them are exactly the same. No. They, they always seem to sort of... One uh, falls into that masculine energy. One falls energy. into one role and yeah, one falls into the other role. Yeah. And then together 
that seems it's to a work. Complimentary and thing, it seems yeah. to like it seems to bring kind of balance to the force. Yeah. As it and were, this right? is the force so, of the universe. This is Mother Nature operating and creating this, and it doesn't matter what sort of uh, you know pieces of the puzzle you throw at it. Nature creates that because it works. And it's like uh, uh, Nicholas Taleb says that Lindy effect that he always mentions, which I love. Mm-hmm. You know, if a book's been in print for a hundred years, chances are it's going to be in print in another hundred years. Mm-hmm. The, the book that came out last year almost has no chance of being in yeah so i'll go with mother nature i'll go with nature on these things you know i'm not going to adopt an ideology from feminism or from when i'm just going to trust nature on that because it's been around a lot longer you know mm-hmm. so i think that's kind of a and this nicholas Taleb guy i just uh you know i have to say uh, i like that you had him on because um he taught me hormesis um which is this uh, this idea that you can um, and, and he explains it all nicely and where it came from and, and so forth. But the idea that you can you can take a little bit of poison for a long, long time. So when my son first got home, my daughter had a peanut butter sandwich. And then she went and touched him. And he had big welts all over him. So we all, fuck, here, another mm-hmm. little issue we've got to deal with. So now we're in the hospital, EpiPen. We've got to keep one you know, around. But I remember I had read his book. So what I did, fragile, yeah. So what I did was I I breathed on him, and then I would eat some peanut butter, and I would just touch him. It would get a little red, and I did this for a year and a half. He's got no peanut allergy. Nice. And I just exposed him a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit at a time, and now he can eat a peanut butter sandwich. Right, because yeah. so, I, I said I'm not letting this kid go to school with a peanut allergy. He's going to learn because there's no adults that have peanut allergies, and this is yeah. I think was in that book. I think he even mentions that. Yeah, very few if there are. So so it is something that is, you can tolerate. So that so I did that, and I did it purposely every day. I it, it didn't even keep. So I bought the organic stuff, of course. It stirred mm-hmm. really nice, and uh, so that, that and so that was kind of an interesting sort of thing. But on the on the male female thing, I think that men have to show up powerfully for women because women need a powerful man in their lives. If they don't have a, you know, to go home to a weak man is, uh, it, it's almost as if her pact with the universe has been broken. You know, like she has somehow, on some level that we can't even understand, there's something, uh, an existential sort of um, angst that's created from from having a partner that's, that's disappointing that way. I mean, obviously, we marry what we can tolerate. But at the, at the same time, without a powerful man in our life, um, you, you, it's rife for a very unhappy woman. Well, you know? I've, I've seen also this less so, but I have seen the situation where you'll have um, a, a straight woman who is grew up in a, in a very abusive household mm-hmm. with like a a violent domineering father mm-hmm. um, who was just like, you know, just a fucking asshole. Like, and yeah. it was very violent and, but like a very, the 2%, uh, t- t- yeah. you know, testosterone pumped, like yeah. jerk who threw his weight around and, and threw mom around a bully, and was viol- a bully. Right. Yeah. And so they basically associate any kind of assertive, mm-hmm. uh, male with father, with a bully. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is they, they will they seek out like a guy who's the exact opposite yeah. of that right yeah. somebody who like is doing like a, a degree in a guy a straight guy who's doing a degree in women's studies at yeah. like Concordia oh like, my and god like and he was and he's like just you're scaring me he, he enters a room and tries to just 
completely eliminate his presence so yeah. as not to like take up too much space right. in the room and like just says all the right things so they end up with a guy like that and they 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 go with cuz that that guy's safe mm-hmm. you know he looks like uh he's he's never going to be a bully mm-hmm. he doesn't have a violent bone in his body he's mm-hmm. very he's very sweet he's very mm-hmm. kind and stuff like that uh but then they run into the problem that they're they're actually they're basically they're not attracted to the guy at mm-hmm. all, and so they they have like very bad kind of sexual chemistry in their relationship. They right. have, and also she ends up being kind of annoyed by the guy mm-hmm. in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why. If you, I mean, because I I grew up, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but my father also was math, like big time bully, very mm-hmm. violent mm-hmm. toward me, toward mom, towards like right. a lot of people, and big time bully. And uh, I have seen how some people who came out of that situation, um, they are just afraid of any kind of assertive male presence. They feel like that's that's automatically bad. I mean, yeah. so when you're when you're counseling guys and you're telling them like how I'm going to help you get your your power, as you put it, like what in a tangible way, what do you actually tell them to do? Well, I mean, a lot of guys compromise their life and they become mules. They just go to work every day and escape in there. And um, the relationship with the missus at home is uh, is on paper really only. You know, people can very quickly move into a, um, a sort of a stagnant, especially if you're raising children, a, a stagnation uh, where, um, you know, you're just expected to go to work, come home with a paycheck, pay the bills and... and but um, so we want guys to show up more powerfully for their women. And it's almost better to confront all of those issues like that gal with the, the bully of a father. Um, a man shouldn't compromise himself on that because he's going to be unhappy, too, if he's not expressing his masculinity in a safe you know, um, and uh, appropriate way. So if he's forced to you know, damper that part of his personality or part of his being— um, you know, he, you know, he he's living a compromised life too. So you're better off stepping up and saying, "Hey, hang on a minute," um, you know, let's resolve this now. So there's there's no excuse for not finding your power as a man. You don't know, you think? You don't know. you think it's possible? Just you know, I'm just thinking of a couple of examples that like sprang to my mind as we're talking here. But like, don't you think it's possible for there to be a guy who's just by nature? Um, a very shy, introverted yep. sure. uh, person, and basically, like, because you know, I'm thinking of two people in particular. Absolutely. One guy, one guy who uh, the was, shy introvert kind of guy. He was, yeah, got and, a quiet and I remember power, this though. this this one guy who um, he we knew him. He was like he was running the daycare that our kids went to when right. they were younger, and he was a very very nice guy, really mm-hmm. really nice guy. Very you know, in many ways, great great guy. But I I met his. Um, his his wife and his wife was just this incredibly powerful force of nature type right. person very loud took a lot right and it's just one of those people that just makes the trains run on time and very yeah uh kind of alpha alpha female type right right, right. and um and he said uh he i remember like i don't know i understand how this i can't remember how this came up but he said yeah i really like it we have a very good relationship because uh, we both have our established roles. I, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm very introverted. I don't like talking. Right. She does all the talking in right. social situations. I just hang back and 
and yeah. she's she's got you know if I was with somebody like me, mm-hmm. uh, nothing would ever get no decisions right. would ever get made, right. and so it's a good balance that we have, yeah. right? Yeah, and he he didn't feel powerless at all. He no. felt like it was a really good balanced and, relationship. And, and, and right? this and this is the amazing thing about couples if they can find that and. You know, there's every different combination. There's no rules about these things. There's a, there's whenever we make generalizations about any group, there's that great. Uh, this is the 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 quote that I always go back to. It's um, who is it? This guy. I'll tell you, this is the, it's Darwin. And when he says each animal species is a population of unique individuals who vary from one another. No feature or set of features is necessary, sufficient, or even frequent or typical of every individual in the population. Any summary of the population is a statistical fiction that applies to no individual. And isn't that mm-hmm. true? Yeah. Because we've seen enough by now that sometimes these people make it work. And I'm just so impressed with that. Yeah. You know? Because there's, there's no reason for a woman not to be able to take it. But... If she's a feminine gal at her core and, and he helps her feel feminine, that may be part of it. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors or at home and, on yeah. and so forth. So there may be um, – their needs are being met that way. But generally, if a woman is feminine at her core, she needs a strong man in her life. And, and by strong man, I don't mean a guy who's you know, making all the decisions. And, but no, he's, he's there to be powerful for her and show up powerfully. And and to work in service of himself and those around him, her especially the the family usually if they're having a family. But it doesn't mean that he has to. I think a man should lead the household, though. I think. And but I think when I saw that uh, wonderful line, uh, uh, "A man leads, uh, a woman commands." Fuck a lot of truth to that. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> the truth. Leonard to that. Cohen song, "Never Mind." That's yeah. right. A yeah. wonderful line. And I, I, when I saw it, whoop, that one just leapt out at me because. Uh, there's so there's so much to that. Um, women have this amazing intuition that uh, I think most men don't have. Um, my wife knows when my my little boy is sick three four days before I, you know, do you think I should keep him home from school? Hell no, he looks fine. Send him tomorrow. He'll be great. No, I think he's getting a call. I, I haven't heard anything. You know, no, I, I think he's getting sick. Sure enough, by Wednesday he's home because he's coughing and he's sniffling. She could tell two days before I can. It's amazing. If I go to a, a, a gathering, a party, and, and we're on our way home, and I'll say, well, what did you think of so-and-so? I thought this was kind of interesting about so-and-so. Then she'll give me three layers of depth on that person, the stuff that went right over my head. I didn't even catch. So it, clearly we're meant to be complementary that way, and we and – we, you know, and, and we do a really good job of that, and it's the best way to be. So I, I don't think there's, um, you know, it, it, it's very helpful to start to, you know, throw stones or men are this way or women are that way. Well, we are generally have, you know, certain characteristics. We do, women do tend to overthink. Men do kind of focus in on, on one thing to the exclusion of all other. Women tend to have a small group of very close guarded friends that they use for emotional regulation. Guys don't. We'll know guys in all kinds of different areas. That's why we tend to build cultures, you know, but we can't do it without the women behind us. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, it's like, I don't know who says this. I think Tony Robbins says, you put the men here and the women here, the men are always going to go over here. <laughs> They're always going to follow those women. <laughs> They're always going to do it. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter yeah. what uh, what the circumstances are. That that's you know, so um, so yeah. So that's sort of and uh, you know. So then you there's do a, they always though? Because it it seems to me that what I see 
Oh, with uh, MGTOW with, and those what guys? I, what, what I see, you know, more often, especially in the last, like, 10 years, mm-hmm. is I see um, guys, and, you know, maybe I've always seen this. I remember, mm-hmm. like, the taverns when I was growing yeah. up. Taverns didn't let women in. Right. Like, in Cote St. Paul yeah, when and I was stuff a kid, like that. Like, like they, like didn't that allow, yeah. they didn't let women in. Yeah. And there were, like, all these male-only spaces, mm-hmm. right? And it seems like in my, in my lifetime, I've seen that all these male-only spaces have been opened up and mm-hmm. have become kind of open for everybody and uh at the same time there be been these like female only spaces that have opened up mm-hmm. and those remain and but these days what i find is if you ever talk about a male only space immediately there's there's like what yeah. what's going on like yeah. what what what's wrong like that's yeah. sexist that's yeah but if you have a female only space that's completely fine right, right. we need to have a safe space to talk about some stuff yeah. but like if you want to have uh, a male only space right so but I, what I have seen is more and more uh, young guys who just want to hang out with like their friends and like, yeah. play video games and like they don't want to. I mean, they're attracted. You know, they're, they're 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 straight, so they're attracted to women, but they are scared of women, yeah. mystified by them, right. don't really understand them, feel kind of really intimidated, and so would prefer to just hang out with the guys because mm-hmm. it just feels safer and yeah. and easier to navigate, yeah. right? And that, and I, I've seen that um, also with, you know, I, I know a number of, of gay guys who, I mean, I, I, I would never say as a, as a general statement that gay guys are misogynistic. I, they aren't. But I, I do know a fair number of gay guys who are not so much, well, maybe they're misogynistic in the sense that, I, I've had a number of gay friends disdain. I know who've told me that, you know, one of the best things about being gay is I don't have to put up with women's bullshit. Well, and he goes and I can just hang around with like dudes yeah. and it's awesome. And they say like, you know, aside from the fact that um, this one guy put it to me, he goes like, aside from the fact that like I'm I'm attracted to dudes, uh, I also just, I actually, I just like them more. Mm-hmm. Like I just like hanging out with them more. And it's so great yeah. that I don't have to like actually, yeah. right? And then I've heard, um, the same thing from some from some women. I've heard some women say like, mm-hmm. uh, "Yeah, you know, one of the great things, one of the things I love about being gay, the fact that I'm a lesbian, is I just don't have to hang around with guys a lot because yeah. I prefer the company of women." Yeah, I mean, I know some lesbians that won't even have a male dog. You know, they just because <laughs> because the, they come over and, and get pictures done with the misses, and now we don't even want a male dog. That's you know, hilarious. so 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 there's a couple of things there. You know, like um, women and men tend to compete differently too. You know, uh, women hold their cards pretty close to their chest. They, they're called dissemblers, they call it, you know. And so that's another sort of, a, and, uh, you know, obviously nature made them that way or, or tends to give them that characteristics for a reason. I mean, there's, there's but, um, you know, men will, will either compete by straight face, face-to-face and best you at something or they'll put you down. And and uh, somehow they, that asshole and and put you down and both both of those strategies um, fire the same parts of the brain. You get the same reward areas of the brain. They both work, but one's kind of you know social, one's kind of antisocial. You know, one kind of is good for everybody. Uh, the, the the other one isn't. You get gals, and you've probably read this study that you know women will run up against boys in high school, and they'll get their best scores. You know, boys will run against boys in high school to get their best scores. And then girls run against uh, other girls in their high school and their scores drop. Nobody wants to be the, that bitch out front. You know what I mean? Because the rest of them <laughs> are looking behind you 
and uh, and it's and it's dangerous because women compete a little bit differently. Even Susan Pinker wrote a great book, and I think it was 2009, right here from Montreal. I think she was a Montreal psychologist, call-in radio host or something like that, called The Sexual Paradox. That's Stephen Pinker's book. sister. I, I right? don't know who it is. Yeah, it's Stephen Pinker's sister. Wonderful, yeah. I think she, I think she lives, I mean, they're, they're both from here. Right. But I think she lives in Toronto. Okay, I'm, I'm does not she sure. know? Okay. But yeah, I haven't read that book yet. I think on the, on, the, uh, on the jacket it said she was in Montreal. This is a oh, number wow. of years ago that this hmm. book was out. But anyways, in it she says... And she cites all the research behind it that women tend to compete um, by maneuvering covertly and using mean remarks, social exclusion, and trying to win over your friends and allies. So you ask any high school girl, was that true? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they know. And so, and, and because I, you, I hear ad, grown adult women, I think she's trying to take my friend away from me. And, I, you know, like it's a, it's a, even my, my divorce lawyer told me, he said, you know, he says, when you told me that, he says, I went home and I talked to my wife about it. And she said, yeah. And there was a lady across the street of our place that, where she always went to visit. And then a new lady moved in down the street. And now they've been kind of connecting. And, and she's not getting invited over as often. She's stealing my friend. Like, a guy wouldn't give a shit about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But a gal does because it's important to her, you know. And so, so they compete differently. So those that... When, when guys, and, and, and I posted on my Facebook wall this thing about Susan Pinker's uh, quote, and jeez. Uh, <laughs> you got crucified? Me. I got unfriended by some <laughs> really smart, wonderful women that I appreciate. I got unfriended. Another yeah. one sent me private messages scolding me, yeah. sticking up for the other one. And, you know, so, and uh, <laughs> you, you can't even mention it, but I think you should. I think we should talk about that kind of stuff. And I think any guy ought to know that, that that's how it works. This is the way we compete. And so we yeah. should be aware of that. We should talk. If you're going to talk about men's foibles, you should talk about women's flaws, too, so that we can put it right out on the table and understand how, how can we go now from there and get along and, and be that complementary sort of unit that we're supposed to be. And this speaks to greater issues at large, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, that whole Kavanaugh hearing down in the States, I mean— this is again, you know, it's that feminist agenda. It's it's very, you know, not and, and not in a, it, but it's not the best side of women. Let's put it that way. It's not the best side of women to 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 um, uh, dissemble that way. You know, to and whether or not Kavanaugh. That's not my call. I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm not. Just, I've got no skin in that game. Uh, but you know. That's a that seems to be coming into politics more and more. You got the you got in. the impression that she was making it up. It's not. I, she it, seemed really it, credible it, to me. Well, yeah. I, I, it doesn't matter if she's making it up or not making it up. It's just that is was it really as big a deal as it as it was? I don't, I'm not sure. You know, and um, and it's not just that particular instance. It's it's that whole uh, hue and cry. Um, uh, and, and a lot of it's got valid points behind it. I mean, there's, uh, you know, the Me Too thing and so forth. Sure, it's, it's, some men are assholes. Mm -hmm. and, 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 hey, we, guys got to own it. And that's got to be on the table, too. Um, but, um, you know, when you start to throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and all men should just shut up and on and so forth, eh, you know, I don't mm. think that's helpful. Anyway. Well, very often I what I've heard from um, – sort of the critique of a certain kind of uh, a certain kind of changing of gender roles as they say well uh men should all basically become women 
and should become like like women and they yeah. have a particular idea in their mind of what woman is which i think is quite narrow and right. not not very right. effective but leaving that alone I reject so it they'll entirely. like they'll say like okay there's this certain feminine way of being in the world and the world will be uh, like i remember some of the uh, some of my mom's friends when i was a kid saying to me uh, that and these were these were kind of single moms in Verdun who had, you know, come out of like really abusive relationships and they were pretty poor living on welfare in Verdun and stuff like that. And like, they're kind of pretty angry at men and stuff like that. And there was this like women's center and they would sit around like at the kitchen table and they would talk about stuff. And I remember like uh, one of, one of her friends saying, uh, uh, you know, like the world will be a better place when, when women, there'll be no more war and no more like exploitation, oppression if women are like running everything. And I remember I was like very young, but I, I would hear these conversations. Yeah. And since I was like the only male in the entire house, because it was my mom had me and my two little sisters. And so she'd have like, all these like women over and they're all like really angry about men and they're like saying all this stuff. And I remember saying like, um, well, what about I was, I don't know, maybe 10 years old. And I said, like, what about Margaret Thatcher? I mean, she's she's a woman and she's... Yeah, uh, the outlier. And, and they, <laughs> the response was, you know, well, she's not a real woman. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> and like, yeah. And, you know, and then I would, like, I, over the years, I would bring up, like, you know, other examples of, like, women that were in power. And they'd say, oh, well, she's just turned herself into a man in order to be mm -hmm. in a position of power. And, you know, later on in philosophy, I learned that this is what's called the no true Scotsman fallacy, right? right Where you right, like, right. Uh, no true Scotsman drinks Irish whiskey. Right. Well, I got a dude, he's red hair, pasty yeah. as fuck, <laughs> got a kilt on, <laughs> drinking Jameson. I think he's actually Scottish and that's actually Irish. Right. Like, well, he's not a real Scotsman. Like, so right. it's a way of like basically explaining away examples that don't work, right? So it seems like there's some people who say uh, that that uh, men should just become like this idea of, of womanhood, right? Mm. And then there's others who say, well, if women are going to get involved and in, like become like CEOs and are going to become uh, go in politics and go in these kind of high powered positions, that they have to become, you know, male. Mm -hmm. You know, once again relying on, on a kind of stereotype of right. what male is, right? Right. And it seems to me that like both of both of these strategies are very misguided yeah, because what we what we actually want. Mm -hmm is we want people to be full human beings mm -hmm. that uh, that that have developed and have cultivated all of the mm -hmm. you know, a nice constellation yeah. of human virtues yes right which include you know everything from from courage yep. and the strength to compassion to yep. empathy to you know patience to like decisiveness like all of those things mm -hmm. right and so if we just if we just sort of decide that these virtues in this column, we're going to call those male, mm -hmm. and these virtues are female. And so, if you're male, you don't need to worry about these virtues. Right. If you're female, you don't. No, that's bullshit. Right. Like you actually should try and cultivate sure uh, a nice constellation of virtues that make you into a full and balanced sure. person. Right. And so, you just do it with a, in a, with a male perspective. I mean, there's a why is it that most women would prefer a male boss? That statistic keeps coming up uh, wherever I, I travel. I haven't heard that. And, uh, uh, and huh. Gallup is the, um, is the organization, and, and uh, most gals still prefer to have a male boss. You know, uh, it can be difficult to work for a woman uh, who has all of those powers of competition who's also trying to be a man, something that really she's not. 
Well, can you imagine the pressure on her? Uh, that must be a difficult thing. Now, some gals learn to balance this, and they, they're comfortable in their skin and on and so forth. But I, I think there's a lot of gals who are out there who are who are think that that's the way they have to exist in this male world sort of thing. In this, uh, And um, um, maybe that's their expectation. I don't know. But it's, um, it makes for unhappy people. And yeah. it makes for unhappy uh, workers. Uh, because if most women would prefer to have a male boss, uh, that says something. You know, um, um, I haven't read that. That's uh, that's very yeah. interesting. I I mm-hmm. I don't know. I've I've had um, I've had I've had women who are my bosses. I've had men. I I haven't noticed. I haven't personally noticed like a a big difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, yeah, I haven't noticed a, mm-hmm. a real a real you're in difference. the education field too. That's uh, yeah. Uh, you're largely you know. like pretty autonomous. You don't really have to actually deal with a mm-hmm. superior very often. But mm-hmm. but no, I haven't. I haven't noticed. But I worked like other jobs as well, like in the past, and I, I haven't noticed a, mm-hmm. a huge difference. I, I think probably yeah. Even that doesn't doesn't totally fit. I mean, if if I had to make a, a generalization, I would say that it seems like. Um, with but this is not just bosses it's just like in my experience guys in general can be much more uh harsh like they can get into arguments and sure. like ah, i'm fucking asshole and like yeah. say like all this and then like it just completely uh is gone mm-hmm. it's like there's yeah. no grudge it's just all completely gone yeah. whereas i've had when i've had similar kinds of interactions with uh women whether it be friends or whether it be people i was working with or by yeah. then it seems like they're really holding on to that. Yeah, it's and damaged now. And they're, it's kind yeah. of they're hearing it mm-hmm. replayed in their head again and again. Like, well, mm-hmm. you said that mean thing like three weeks ago. And like, really? Yeah, never you let still it go. remember that? Never like, let I go. can't believe yeah. you're still thinking about that. But so I, you know, and there is actually this, I have actually read some pretty mm-hmm. good research on this. Then mm-hmm. apparently um, on average, women tend to remember emotionally upsetting um, experiences. Yeah more than uh more fully and more accurately than men do yeah i think right? that's in um uh, there's a new york men, times article yeah, about men this. and yeah. women an inside story a book i can't remember the author i have it um i think it's in there too and definitely um um you know the the, the myth of childbirth women can handle more pain than myth you know uh, than men men can handle more pain on every objective measure um, that's another sort of feminist myth. Um, so there's all kinds of uh, bullshit out there that um, that. Uh, sort of, but I, you know, California has this rule that they're, they're it's going to I think, to the governor for signing to to include a, a woman on every uh, board. Well, it's a bit of a hardship for um, companies, and uh, of course, it may mean that uh, some women are hired when there's a better candidate in terms of just looking at the board, but. The idea behind it is probably a pretty good one because I, I've had, you know, teams of uh, working in. The, I, I worked as I was a senior vice president for Canada for in the largest uh, paid sales uh, subscription sales for, um, you know, National Post and Toronto Sun and all all the way out to BC. And I had uh, 150 reps under me. Ran seven different cities. And, uh, you know, I've had teams of managers and boy, you sure, you sure like to have that gal on your on your on your sort of manager sort of pool that you can go to for that different perspective. Yeah, I uh, didn't hear about know? the California thing, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's already the, the law of the land in Sweden, Norway and a yeah. number of other countries. They already have like that rule that if you're uh, if you're a 
a publicly traded corporation of like a certain be kind, a gal on the board. That there has to be at least woman, one woman on the board of directors, yeah. and like they, uh, they, I can't remember what their rationale was for it, but it, apparently, they just thought you know if these organizations are very um, important and yep. they wield a lot of power, yep. mm-hmm. and so it, in the same way that in in the political realm, mm-hmm. increase you know in the political realm. Uh, in a country like Canada, for instance, I mean, you can find this in pretty much any country. But uh, in a country like Canada, all the way from from the 1830s, even you know, with like people like Louis Hippolyte La Fontaine and Robert Baldwin yeah. and all yeah. these people, like they understood that if if we we're going to make this country work, there would have to be uh, the government would have to have legitimacy. It would have to seem like it was a government that mm-hmm. represented the whole country, right. which meant you could never have a cabinet that was only made up of French last names. Right. And you could never have a cabinet that was only made up mm-hmm. of English last names. Right. So you had to have a nice mix of people from different parts of, uh, at that point it was the, the Dominion of Canada and the United uh, Upper and Lower Canada, right. right? And then later on after Confederation, they continued this tradition in cabinets again and again. They didn't take necessarily the most qualified people mm-hmm. for every position, right. although they they invariably so would have... if they've done a, it for that, they can do it with gender as well. I see of. absolutely no difference between... Yeah. Like when, when uh, you know, I, I respect Jonathan Kay a great deal. I like the guy. But when he criticized Trudeau for saying, we're going to have half the cabinet be mm-hmm. women... And people say, well, that's, you know, he said, that's ridiculous. They should choose the most competent person for the job. Yeah. That bullshit. Like, Canada's never done that. Yeah, let's Canada give it a has always, Canada has always, because the whole yeah. point of any government, yeah. right? And But it's especially important if you have a, a government based on, like a representative democracy. The most important thing you need to have is legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Your government needs to seem like yeah. it, it's power, its power is legitimate, yeah. right? And so... A main way that you get legitimacy. I mean, if you have a police force sure. that's all white in a black neighborhood, that police force doesn't have a lot of legitimacy, sure. right? Um, if you have a right, if you have like same thing with the RCP officers, mm-hmm. they're going like up north to like a Cree area, and they're all from down south, and they're, right. Right, they're not from there. They're not going to have legitimacy. So, government has to uh, try to be representative. It has to, that way. It yeah. has to not only. Uh, strive mm-hmm. to work in the interests of the whole group. They also have to, you have to, like, you know, they say be just and appear just, mm-hmm. right? Those are both important things. So right. uh, it makes sense to me that if you have uh, a large organization that needs legitimacy in order to function mm-hmm. correctly, then you might just say, hey, we want to make sure that that this cabinet looks like a rough approximation of the country. So if half the yeah. electorate are women and you have um and you have a cabinet that's 100 percent dudes that to me is is as unstable as having a cabinet that's 100 percent people from alberta yeah and i right? think it's people from the rest of shot. canada are gonna be like why should i yeah. stay in this federation if i'm not yeah. being represented yeah you know? and i think it's worth giving a shot we haven't done that before so you know you know we get every four years we get another crack at it right <laughs> 
So, yeah. you know, I think it's worth giving a shot. And I remember hearing Jermaine, uh, I think it was Jermaine Greer, long, long time, one of the founding feminists from in my era anyways, and on, again, CBC saying that, you know, she'd been around for 50 years and she doesn't see, um, she, she would hope to have seen women in, in greater power. And, in, in, and, and she said, I don't, I don't think they have it in them. I don't think they have it in them to organize. And her recommendation on that particular interview that I said was that they, they do like that, uh, that Farmers Association, Women Farmers Association down in the States and start to organize and get small cliques all over the small little clubs everywhere and to go from there so that they can learn to do this. And so, uh, so there, there may be something to that, that it's just not a natural position. But then there's that gal every once in a while who could step up and do better as equal or better than any man in that position and so that ought to equal opportunity definitely you mm. know um but women are, and men are i have a daughter she's seven now well when she was born you know the, all of this is floating through my mind and uh, so i said well i'm gonna show her how to use tools she's gonna hang around me in the garage and we're very tight mm -hmm. charlie and i and um you know when she was five i guess five yes um, when she was three years old, she was taking all the clothes out of her, out of her, uh, uh, out of wild there. And mm -hmm. she was matching up the tops and bottoms all on her own. Nobody taught her to do that. <laughs> she was just doing that as a girl. This will be yeah. nice with this. And then when she was five, I swapped out the toilet in this old farmhouse and I, so I put a new toilet in. And, uh, and when I reached over, I reached to get the pliers and I was holding the reservoir and I let it go for a second and it fell forward and it cracked. So I'm not the type to put it back in the box and say, oh, it was broken. I went back to the Home Depot and I said, listen, I need a new one. I just busted this one, right? So the guy gave me a great deal. I bring it home. But it meant I had a second uh, toilet seat. And they come in a box because yeah. they don't get scratched. So they're all boxed. So that was kicking around my garage. So I'm cleaning out in the garage in the spring. And I find this box. And she's following me around, Daddy, this. What about that? What about this? What about that? And talking nonstop. And I'm trying to focus. So I, I find this box. And I said, Charlie, here, here's a present for you. I said, take this box, <laughs> go in the house, and you can open up. A present for me? Yeah. So you take it in the house, you go find mom, and she'll help you open it, and it's a present for you. She said, well, thank you, Daddy. Off she goes. I forget about it, right? I go back work in the, in the garage, cleaning it all up. About half an hour, 45 minutes, she comes back in. Not fucking a happy camper. She said, Daddy, why did you give me a potty seat for a present? <laughs> really sad go uh oh right she said that wasn't very nice and i said well charlie i said it was like a joke she said well maybe you think it was funny she's five i didn't think it was very funny i thought you were giving me a present and you gave me a potty seat who wants a potty seat for a present daddy <laughs> oh my God. well i felt like about this high yeah. you know i had to sit down on the weight bench with her and say you know what charlie you're right i i made a mistake i should never have given that it was insensitive of me I thought I was playing a little joke on you, but I can see how that would upset you, and I apologize, and I'm sorry. I don't know what I did. I hugged her and on and so forth. Maybe I promised her ice cream later or something like that, but it taught me something. And all these women over the years have told me, you know, Wally, you need to have a daughter so you can understand women better. Mm -hmm. I'd go, ah, come on, stop <laughs> it, right? You know, it's all discipline, you know? Yeah. Because the trick with parenting is is connection. It, parents are like those little ducks that follow the mama duck, and wherever the mama duck goes, the the, 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 the little baby ducks go. So it, when you're parenting, your whole ideal is just to keep that connection going because that's how nature made them. They're made to orient towards a parent, and th th there's just no way. So those same kind of principles apply, I think, between men and women. But in, with children, 
If you can just maintain that orientation, that orientation towards you for as long as you can, you can impart your values and on and so forth. So if you break that, so everything I do, I say, is this going to increase my connection with my children or is this going to decrease my connection with my children? If it's going to increase the connection with my children, I do it because that's probably how Mother Nature intended. If it's going to break it, if it's going to interfere with that connection with my children, I got to rethink it. It's probably not a great idea. Because when a child is connected to their parents, when they have that orientation and that is sound, they feel valued. They feel like somebody. They feel like, no, I'm special. I, I belong. And that need to belong is a universal feeling in human beings. When they feel valued like that, now you can teach them what you need to teach them, especially self-discipline. Not like boot camp discipline, but being able to delay gratification, and which is the single best predictor of a successful life later on. You get guys who are maybe not that smart, but God damn it, they're disciplined. They usually do fine in life. So that's what you want to do. And um, uh, Bessel van der Kolk has this great quote. I don't know if I have it. I, 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 may, ha I may have it. I got to read it to you because it's a beautiful uh, quote. And uh, where is he? This is a, uh, yeah, here it is. As long as we feel safely held in safely held in the hearts and minds of the people who love us, we will climb mountains and cross deserts and stay up all night to finish projects. Children and adults will do anything for people they trust and whose opinion they value. And this is so true of children. They will do anything for you if they feel that connection. You break that connection, well, now their connection, their orientation goes somewhere else. TV, video games, drugs, porn, whatever else. Peers, what the fuck do peers know? Mm -hmm. 13, 14, not a hell of a lot. It's the last place you want their orientation. You want them on your parents. So that's, the, that's parenting simplified. Keep that connection strong. That way they'll feel valued. And from then you can impart your values and your, the, the morality and, and discipline to them. And, and that's really the, yeah. the, the well, bottom line. You know, line the, the guy you know? who actually, what you're referring to, the guy who... Uh, who invented the marshmallow test? Oh right? yes, Where yes, yes. Way, like, way back, yes. Yeah, yeah. They, yes. He died recently. Yes, I think but, so. Yes. Uh, but anyway, they, they've actually gone back, right, and, and looked, looked at it again, right? Looked at it again, and, and they found going, a really, really interesting thing because yeah. they used to think that um, that the the kids that you know, I mean, the, for those of you listeners who aren't familiar with this, it's um, so they they put a kid in a room and they have a marshmallow sitting there on a plate, and they say uh, and a you know, an adult with a white coat comes in and says, you know, I'm going to leave you for, you know, whatever, five minutes, 10 minutes, depends on different ways they did the study. But said, if you can not eat this marshmallow, when I come back, I'm going to give you two, right? And so then there's hidden cameras watching the kids. And of course, some kids just have no willpower, impulse control. They kind of hold out for about, you know, 10, 20 seconds, and then they just grab the marshmallow and they eat it, right? And some kids hold out. And then they went and looked at those kids later on, and they found that the kids that had the willpower to not eat the marshmallow, uh, they are do better in school. They have more successful relationships. They make more money. They have more, you know, in, in every way. And the kids who couldn't uh, couldn't resist and had like low willpower those kids end up having very high teen pregnancy rates uh, substance abuse they end up in jail they fail out of uh, high school they don't finish exactly. any of their projects they're in like four marriages they they can't maintain any they don't even have uh, consistent friends they ch they tend to cycle through friends like every six months every year because mm -hmm. they burn bridges all the time because they have no like impulse control right like so 
Um, this was like the prevailing wisdom for a couple decades after that. But then there were some researchers who went back and and replicated that study, and they found that actually the the real reason, which is really freaky and it kind of makes the hair stick up in my arms, the, the real reason why the kids who resist the marshmallow, it actually doesn't have to do with varying levels of willpower. It has to do with varying levels of trust in adults. Mm, yes, because the people, recently, yes. right, the people who, uh, the kids who come from homes Better connection. with dads who never keep their promises, yeah, I'm going to take you to the zoo on the weekend. Mm -hmm. They flake out and like right. don't do it. They hung right. over, sleep through Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, I'm going to go to this or don't show up to their play or their yeah. gymnastics. Never like... It, don't keep their promises yeah. and are untrustworthy, yeah. like emotionally untrustworthy. They're very variable, yeah. kind of you don't know what they're going to mm -hmm. do. Um, like kids who come from like unstable homes in that way, mm -hmm. they don't trust adults to keep their promises. Right. So their attitude is, you know, better a bird in the hand than two in the bush. Yeah. Like I, I've got this marshmallow now. Yeah. I have an opportunity for pleasure yeah. right Never now. Never mind what this guy, this I'm bullshit gonna, this guy's telling me. I'm going to take it yeah, yeah. now, right? Yeah. And it's uh, it's because they don't trust. And so the kids that can resist, mm -hmm. they can resist not because they have some naturally have better willpower right, than right, other right. kids. It's because they trust the adult world because yeah. the adult world has proven itself trustworthy right. on numerous occasions yes. to them. Right. So it's right. Uh, and this this also like once you realize that a whole lot of other stuff. Well, like yes. The priest abuse scandals yes. make sense. The kids that got sexually abused by the priests mm -hmm. were almost always the good kids, mm -hmm. the goody two shoe kids that came from like because they trusted adults. The mm -hmm. really bad kids, kids like you, they didn't normally. Yeah, they I were was not the ones. I, I was an altar boy because they. I, I wasn't abused. They were very very uh, <laughs> skeptical of the right. adult world right. and the idea that an adult might. Uh, mm -hmm. Try and fuck with you, or it might be like a, yeah. like dangerous. We see him coming. Yeah, yeah, they would completely. Yeah, yeah. It was not outside of their realm yeah. of, of yeah. potential things that can happen at all. But again, right? that connection—if you can maintain that connection with your child—you're going to remain because you know once you hit about fourteen or so, it's very difficult to to maintain influence over a child, and you want them to sort of you know sort of you know slowly uh, you know integrate into that greater society, but you know. If you keep that connection alive as long as possible, and if you just remember that, if you just remember, look at whatever I do, I'm going to keep that connection with that with that child. It, it makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. It makes all the difference in the world, you know, because um, and, and people are, you know, I get guys that come to me and they're having problems with their 13 year old or 14. He's not listening. He's not able. Well, how much time do you spend with them? You know, it, it, people have this stupid notion of quality time. Bullshit. Oh, just time. That. Yeah, I totally. Just time, I man. I 100% agree. Just time. Yeah. Just spend time with them. Quality what do you, what do, you do on the weekends? Well, yeah. Sundays I usually go golfing with my buddies. Well, stop fucking going. Mm -hmm. you know, take, go somewhere with your boy. He's your boy. You yeah. know? I mean, uh, you know, never mind. Just, no more golf for you. Put it, Cancel your season pass or whatever it is. Start taking your – Sundays is your boy day, man. You take your boy out. You want him to listen to you? Go have a friendship with him. Yeah. Maintain that connection. So that's part of what I do. That's another big thing I do with guys is to help them find that sort of – because they're so busy working, they think, well, I deserve at least a little bit of a break. And how am I going to have a fucking life? Because they're mules. They're going to work every day. The, the, the missus isn't screwing them anymore, you know, because they're not showing up powerfully for her. So there's, there's no sort of attraction there. And uh, so, you know, get rid of that golf manager. Go spend time with your kids. That, that's, that's why you had them. You know, what a privilege it is to be somebody's hero. That little child who's looking at you and saying, that's my daddy. Well, 
that doesn't go away, never goes away. My father's 89. He's in an old age home. He, he had all these terrible things that, uh, you know, violent sort of up, upbringing. But uh, as I move past that, and this is the other thing with guys that happens. See, I do my family's genealogy now. I was past, I, I've given that role because I'm the, I'm the clan bard, you know, Wallace's, yeah, right? So yeah. we, we play that up in our family because it gives us an excuse to, you know, uh, pin all of that on. And um, so if I look at it, Thomas Wallace came over to fight in the War of 1812. He got here at the end of the war, so he didn't have to fight. Probably got here at 1814, if I look at his regiment. Settled in Oshawa Village. He had one son, John Wallace. John Wallace had five children, and I'm descended from Thomas Patrick, who then had uh, Howard Vincent, and then my father, Howard. But if you look at these guys, you see that, well, he came from, you know, 200 years ago, most of the world's population were living on a dollar a day. Very, very mm-hmm. power, you know, very, very poor, poor sort of uh, uh, beginnings. And then he you know, came to the new world, had a small pension, he invested smartly and on and so forth, but a very disciplined guy. And then his son, you, you can see on the census from years to year, first he's a laborer, then he's a shoemaker, then he's a boat maker. Then I find that he died from excessive drink on a Saturday night. You see? So... He gets shit-faced, and he, and he dies. So now his son, Thomas Patrick, comes down, and, and he, his mom moves to Toronto to help him get the best education that he can, and he, he opens up a stationary sort of line in Nova Scotia. And uh, he's killed by a train, um, taking a shortcut across the Halifax tra- train yards, going back to his place uh, with a horse and buggy, and he's killed in, in, in 1919. Well, his, his son Howard, who's my grandfather, well, son Howard listened to two of his sisters crying to each other in the night and dying of, of um, uh, scarlet fever uh, or cholera or something like that, uh, typhoid, brought to them by the milkman. And, uh, and then his mom uh, spends three days, 40 years old, giving birth to twins and dies and bleeds to death, despite, oh despite all the women in the neighborhood coming and taking shifts you know, to staunch the bleeding, and if she dies... So now Howard goes to war. He gets shot. And uh, then he says, fuck this. I'm, and, and, he, and he's dead. They, but they find him. He knew the mayor of Halifax. They found him. And uh, they say, well, you better go back and get Wallace. You know, even if he's dead, you better get that body off the field. They went and found him. They brought him. And he was in the, the, you know, the, the little place where they keep the morgue. And he has a thing over. And in the morning, he wakes up. They thought he was dead. So he scares the shit out of the nurse. So then from that, he says, I'm not going back out there as an as a infantryman. So he learns how to be a pilot. So now he's a, a pilot's lieutenant. And he has this big crash landing and smashes his face. And he's in the hospital until about ni- 1920. So then he comes back, starts his advertising, he joins his brother's advertising firm. Um, he's in New Brunswick. His brother's running the, Hall- the, um, the Nova Scotia branch. And but the, his the pain of those generations are starting to follow this guy, and he's a bit of an asshole. My father's first memory told me about two years ago when I moved back to Ottawa was of of hearing his 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 father slapping his mom around about her being flirtatious with people and on and so forth. And he says he was about four, four and a half, and he remembers and he wanted to intervene and he stayed at the top of the stairs. And he, So here's my father, about 88 at the time, maybe 87, telling me this. You know how they can remember way back then, but they can't remember last week. Yeah. That's what happens when people get old. And so he's telling me all these first experiences. So it dawned on me that here's this these men's pain, uh, inadequate way of living is being sort of, transmitted or, or down through the generations 
Well, at some point, it doesn't matter if you know your father or you don't know your father, you have to say to yourself, well, this is what my mom's like. Even if you don't know your father, what else am, what am I like? You can see sort of a contrast there. Well, I have some characteristics that don't come from mom, so that must be from my father, even if you don't know your father. But if you do know your father and you had a great relationship, good for you. But if you didn't, you may say to yourself, well, what else did he give me? I have all of these traits that probably came from my father. At some point, a man has to say, stop. The pain stops here. Mm -hmm. I'm not sending that on to the next generation anymore. Yeah. I'm going to stand up as a man, and I'm going to take responsibility for it, and I'm going to say, I am not going to be like my father was with us. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what, how nature made us to be incremental improvements generation after generation. So that's what I try to teach men to do with their, with their fathers. Try to understand them that he's coming from a, an era and a, and, and a whole probably history of pain that may have been generational. But you can do something about it once you become aware of it. You can stand up and say, hey, the pain stops here. And, and I'm going to do this differently. You can always do that once you have that awareness. Yeah. And so that's what I did. And my father used to laugh at me. You know, you'd, you'd see the way I'm bringing up my first son. And, and he would say to somebody in the room, you know, Christopher's trying really hard not to be me. You know? <laughs> and that was his way of saying, way to go, son. Oh, wow. But, you know, so he, he was, that, like, that was, he was down with that. He, he was knew, okay with yeah, it. Because he knew he came up really short. And, um, you know, my father was a fairly violent guy. And my mother put him up to it a lot of times, you know, passive aggressive. You know, uh, wait till your father gets home. That was my mom. Eh? So, um, yeah, so those kinds of things. Uh, you know, and if yeah. a man that was the same a, thing with me. With One of my main goals yeah. with, my, with my sons was, like, yeah. I don't want to be anything like my father. Yeah. Like, and, and it's not just – it wasn't just the um, – the the violence which is obvious i didn't want to do that but like also it was more than that it was just like a whole package like i, yeah. I didn't want to be uh, just somebody who's so completely self-absorbed all the time right. that they don't have any attention left over for yeah. for the the kid to sort of be who they are yeah. and like no no real interest mm -hmm. in uh, because somebody who's just you know like my mother is like somebody who's just like a completely self-centered narcissist. Right. They don't have any interest in anybody else. And they like, don't have it in them. And, yeah. and, but see, every narcissist has a, a lonely little boy inside. You see, when you see a narcissist, you know that, that there's a lonely little boy in there that's crying out. And, and so that, that narcissism is a reaction formation, if you like Freud, uh, is a reaction formation to what's really going inside. There's a little lonely little boy in there that's crying out for, for acceptance. And so that's their reaction to the world. So when you start to understand your father, not in terms of um, um, you know, resenting him for all of this and say, well, he had to be pretty fucked up to be like that. And see, my, and I have some good memories of my dad, you know, and we exist in each so other. So do I, actually. Yeah. You know, like uh, the other day, my five-year-old, of course, he's, he's potty trained and all that stuff, but he was out and mom was, uh, um, I think she was killing, she was uh, processing a chicken. I, 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 I cut their heads off and she, I give them to her and then she does the rest of it, which I'm happy to do. Not that I'm happy to do it, but it has to be done. Yeah. And anyway, so he was out there and he, and I'm, I'm taking, I'm whacking some rabbits or some chickens or something. And he's yelling at me saying that he shit his pants. Right. <laughs> oh, and I'm going, huh? And then the wind is blowing and I'm about 50, 60 feet from him. And I'm, I said, say that again. I my pants. I pooped my pants. And I said, don't move. Because he's up on the porch. I'm thinking it's going to go all over the place. I finish what I'm doing. Jump in a mule. Go back over and see him. And in that situation, I knew exactly what to do 
because it was one of the best examples of masculinity that I've ever been seen, and, and, I, and it was from my father, and we exist in each other. So what I did was, when I was a little boy at about four, four and a half, we lived in Halifax, and um, I had been warned by my mother, I, you know, I was the kid that took a long time to be toilet trained, and I, was, I often got in heck from it from my mother. And I'd been warned by my, by my mother to be on my best behavior because uh, dad was going to be home. And I didn't even know who the hell he was because he was always gone on the ships. Yeah. He was in the Navy. So I'm at home. We're, you know, fed and watered and put out to play. And I'm, I can only stay on the property because I'm just a little guy. It's probably four, four and a half. And um, it's my first memory. And um, so all of a sudden I felt I had to have a bowel movement. And I knew I'd, and it was coming fast, and I knew I'd never make it up the steps. So what I did was I sat on a concrete step right in the crack of the step, and I put the crack of the step right in the crack of my ass and tried to stop it from coming up. <laughs> okay? So, what, of course, what happens, it just mushroomed. Oh, God. So now I've got shit caked on both sides of me. Oh, my God. I stink. It's only a matter of time before one of the neighbor kids is a baby boom. One of the neighborhood kids or my brothers are going to come along. My sister's going to come along and find me there. Yeah. I'm looking at the thing and I'm like, fucking, I got warned, you know, be on my best behavior. Don't have any accidents on and so forth. So I'm thinking I got to make it inside the house and clean up on my own. I'm four and a half. Waddle up there like a penguin. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, just as I'm about to open up the door, it opens. Right. And there's my father. And he's got one of those, like, uh, T-shirts, sleeveless T-shirts. They call them wife beaters. I don't like that name. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's one of those, t smoking a cigarette back in the day, you know, yeah. Navy guy. And, um, <laughs> problem I'm totally son? imagining, I'm totally imagining yeah. streetcar named Desire. Yeah, you know, so like he's saying, problem, son? He said, well, you know, something like that. And uh, he said, had, oh, and he said, do you have an accident, son? He knew. He could tell just by how I was walking. And I said, yeah. And I, and I started to give him stories. He says, listen to my story. Flinged his cigarette past me. I said, well, come on in. We'll get you cleaned up. No recriminations. No, I told you. No, you're doing this on purpose. None of the usual stuff that I heard from my mother. He just looked after me. So when my son had an accident, and, and it was the finest example of a masculine sort of thing, just take care of business. You know, no emotional part of it. No, you did it on purpose. No, just, so when my son had an accident, I knew exactly what to do. And it wasn't me helping him there. It was my father. Because we, we exist in each other. At that point, I became my father. And I said, no problem, son. You had an accident. Let's look at it. So I washed him down, put him in the bath, took care of his clothes, joked with him so that he would and listen to him tell me all how it happened and what he tried. And that's okay. And, you know, and, I, and I got him through it. So it's that, um, it's that great philosopher, uh, Hofstetter is his name. He did uh, A Strange Loop. A beautiful oh, book. Oh, Douglas Hofstadter. Yeah, yeah, Be yeah. Beautiful book. Yeah. And, um, I am a strange loop. Yeah. I am a strange, yeah. and, and it's that, is that we exist in each other, you know? And, and at that point, I wasn't me helping my little boy. It was my father helping him. It was me, my father through me taking care of that problem. Now, I've got a few of those incidents. They're, they're, they're only a handful, right? Mm -hmm. But I hang on to them. And that's one of my, the greatest examples of masculinity that I could point to because he just, what's the problem? All right, let's just go take care of it. You know, there wasn't anything else. And, I, and so I, it was just a beautiful thing. You know, when I say, um, you know. Allowing you to sort of keep your dignity and not, not shaming you. Is that right? And realizing, yeah. okay, clearly he already feels shitty about it enough. Pun not intended, exactly. but welcome. Exactly. Uh, he already feels exactly. like bad about it enough. So yeah. there's no reason to like, yeah. in any way, you know, just try and like 
help you through this embarrassing situation with your dignity intact. Exactly. And and the idea that we are separate beings, that you're over there and I'm over here and, and that person's over there and... Well, you know, you, you look at a pot of dolphins, you know, who have this been in the ocean for 50 million years. You know, one of them hits the beach. They're all beaching because they have to because they exist in each other because that part of the brain is very well developed in dolphins. And so one hits the beach. They're all going in, man. We're, t- we're in this together. Well, I don't know if human beings will ever get that far if we'll keep this world around long enough to be able to do that. But I think that's something worthwhile, something worth, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, aspiring to is that we exist in each other. When I say, um, you know, canteen open, canteen, watch your fingers, watch your toes, canteen open, canteen close before I shut the car doors with my children in the back, they all sing it along with me and they know to get their <laughs> fingers up because we used to put nine children in the back of it in a Honda, little Honda Civic at oh one time God, and then in Pontiac, Parisian. So, so I, that's my father speaking, you know, yeah. and, and when, uh, when the kids scrape their knees and there's little blood and, Oh, don't worry. That's just the badness coming out. My mom used to say that. You know? Oh, good. You're, you're getting rid of it all. That's good. You know, huh? It's just sort of. It's a pattern interrupt. You know. Yeah. So, so these are these are the things, and and so the people around us, I think, um, you know, we we suck all that in. And what a wonderful thing about human beings that we can do that, and that we can we can pull all of these sort of eclectic sort of influences from the people around us and and make it our own. And um, and when you when you look at humanity that way. Well, we can't discount anybody, can we? We can't leave just because of feminism or because, you know, uh, you know th- th- somebody's a different gender or, or, or has a different preference. We can't leave anybody behind because we're all, we're all in this together. So th- yeah. I know that's kind of utopian and, and, and so forth, but it's sort of how I feel about it. Do you know? think it's harder to be a, a, a boy today than it was when we were coming up? I, I think so. I, I do think so. Um, I, I, I do. I, I, and Warren Farrell calls it, you know, the difference between a, a, a heroic purpose and, and not having that anymore. But I think, I, th- I don't know if Warren's right about that. Um, you know, moving from a, a heroic purpose to a healthful pur- purpose. Eh, seems kind of lame. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> you don't go to the fucking gym, work on your muscles. <laughs> I mean, MMA has been great for men. Don't get me wrong. You know, like you, guys were letting that slide. Now we're all back in the gym. Everybody's hitting the gym. Everybody's staying in shape. You know what I mean? You see it everywhere, you know. But, uh, but I think men who have a purpose, um, they can still be heroes to somebody, to their community, to the people around them. Uh, I, I think that's pretty important. I don't think that's going to go away, you know. And so I think it is more challenging now. But, you know, there's a more vocal, um, um, you know, side of it too. I mean, the, the gals are, are speaking up, which is good because their counsel is important and and uh, and it's and it's and it's worthwhile. Um, but uh, when it becomes competitive, well, you know, it's not helpful to put each other down. You know, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like a man competes by besting you at a game of chess. Uh, or by um, by just putting you down when when you're you know and, and teasing you and being a bully, both of those are rewarding uh, strategies, uh, but one's not very good for us, you know. So I think that's uh, that's the difference there. Mm. But I, but I think it is more challenging for boys. Definitely, boys are falling behind. Uh, there's book after book on uh, the boy crisis is one of them, but there's there's many books about it, um, and so guys have kind of lost their way a little bit, and um, so we got to step up, and, yeah. uh, and just be better. 
You and know? the the broken men that you that come to you and they mm. they want counsel and they want mm-hmm. advice and stuff like that. Like, are there any kind of common denominators in like what's messed weakness. them up and what's messed them? Weakness. It's just weakness, and, and it's just not a belief in their own power. You know, here's a here's a statistic. Uh, you know, two thirds or so of divorces are initiated by women, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at that stat and you say to yourself, okay, what's going on there? Well, I know all kinds of women that have been divorced and all kinds of men have been divorced and I've seen couples go through this. But if you look at its essence, usually there's a man's weakness behind that somehow. And it's not nice to say, but and it usually takes men some time to realize, you know what, I fell short there. And it's, it's maybe not right away, but a year, two years, three years, four years, five years later, if they've, if they've done the work, they can come to you and say, you know what, I let her down. I wasn't the guy that she th- that she thought I was going to be, and I, and and I didn't I didn't fulfill my side of the bargain, and and that's a big uh, uh, milestone in recovery from divorce is being able to understand that um, you know you had a part in it, you know. But usually, I find that there's a, a a man's weaknesses in there. He's showing up with a pile of expectations. He still has this utopian view that he's going to be loved unconditionally, no matter what the fuck he does. No. <laughs> <laughs> Women are too practical for that. Yeah. You're not coming home and, and drinking beer all weekend and putting on 150 pounds and then getting your dick sucked. It's not <laughs> happening, buddy. It's not going to happen. Right? I mean, yeah. who the fuck do you think she is? Right? So, yeah. and, and so you have to be careful of the pact. You know, the pact yeah. is, okay, I won't criticize you if you don't criticize me. Well, there, there's a life just lived in parallel. No love there. You know, you become horse traders. Look at, I'll do this for you if you do that. You go to bingo and I'll stay in my garage while you're just roommates. Yeah. You know, where's that? So couples have to put themselves first before children, which is very, very difficult for women. Uh, Very, very difficult for women because nature is telling them, look after those children. So you have to understand that about her. The same way you need to understand that she tends to overthink and she needs a powerful man in her life. She's going to try to put those children first and that's fine. So help her do that. Right, but a reminder. Hang on a minute. The best thing we can do for these children is to stay together. Is to, we, children are much better off when they have two of us here, and mm-hmm. that's what our goal has to be. How can we do this so that we stay together and we and we're in this together for both of them? And women have get that. They're not dumb. They they catch it. They go okay, you know, it, it, you know. But you're gonna have to fuck me though. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Regularly. You know, my wife calls it. Well, is this? Uh, don't worry, I'll service you. She sees the rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's got the rabbits out there in the pens. So she decides, look, brought up in the city, in a townhouse, you know, with sisters, doesn't know anything about this stuff. I bring her out on 200 acres. So now uh, she's got like, I don't know, about 15, 20 chickens and some roosters. And, and then she wants rabbits. Okay, so we're at rabbits. And so I build all the pens and the goo. I've never done anything of that either, but I just figured it out. It's yeah. not rocket science. So, uh, so she said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like the book. It's like the buck when we put the buck in with the with the with the female to service her. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> so you may have to be serviced, but she's not going to want to service you if you're not powerful. If mm. you're weak, she's going to say fuck you. She's going to have contempt for you, and contempt is a big killer. So yeah. a man has to show up powerfully. So I don't tell people, look, you know, go home and and uh, and uh, do whatever your wife says to you. You know, Tony Robbins says uh, do this unconditional love thing where where for ninety days just give in to her whatever she says say yes 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 she'll hate you for that the best thing is to and i i don't know where i read this but i read it and the guy it's a great i've given it to 100 guys go home and say to her look at what's one thing i could do for you today babe just one thing one right and then do it for her i don't care if it takes you till one minute to midnight that day do it i don't care it could be something small fix that hinge you haven't touched for two years redo this do whatever it was that you asked 
that she maybe has been that, do that one thing. The next day, do it again. Mm-hmm. The next day, do it again. Now you're leading. Well, a, a few weeks later, she's going, fuck, you know, this is kind of working out pretty good. Maybe I'll do something for him. You know, yeah. because the idea that we're unconditional love, get the hell, get that out of your mind. Yeah. It's a, it's I, a, it's I never, a symbiosis. I, actually, I, I, you know? I, I guess I was fortunate in that respect. Yeah. I never had that ideal. Uh, I, I just didn't pick it up at some point. I mean, I, that's the way I understood it was that you, you love your kids mm-hmm. unconditionally, but you never love your, your like, yeah. I just, I never got that message at yeah. all. It was always that. Uh, your your partner is like somebody who's supposed to, um, you know. They there's definitely conditions that there's things yeah. that they expect you to do, yeah. and vice yeah. versa. Yeah, and, so. and then those are imposed by nature. It's, it's not a, a you know the rules of this you know, equal opportunity. No, no, this is bigger. This is a universal thing. Mm-hmm. She needs a powerful man in her life. So don't be fucking weak. You're disappointing her. Now you're asking her to compromise her pact with the universe because she chose you. Because mm-hmm. that's how it works. Women choose the man, and the man gives in, you know? So we, we think we chose it. See, i got to tell you this one last thing. I don't know if we have time. It's my wife, my wife's 30. I'm 60. <laughs> wow. Okay? All right? Ballin'. <laughs> well, here's, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. So, you know, I, I didn't go chasing a young gal. What happened was I was I was running a team and 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 I ran a few cities and I and she didn't work for us anymore but she was friends with my office manager really sharp gal one of those you know one of those gals I can't live without and um, she'd come over and visit sometimes and I said you know what I said I'm just took over BC I just took over Vancouver I said you should come with me and help me train managers there because I've just taken that account over again I said I've got a two bedroom condo you can have your own room you'll have a key it's already furnished. Uh, you can come and go as you like, and I'm only in town maybe three days out of the week, right? And so you can help me, uh, you know, and so forth. So she says, I'll think about it. And she comes back a few days. Okay, I'll do it. Big adventure. She didn't have anything going on. Give her a job. I paid her well. She moves into this condo. So now I would come, and I was a big salmon fisherman, so I had a freezer full of salmon. I had salmon and salad every night. So mm-hmm. I'd come in, I'd, I'd drink beer and make salmon and salad. And, and shoot the shit with her. She'd be in the other room in, in the, watching TV. I'd be, she'd go out on dates and, on and so forth. So that wa- worked out well for a couple of months. And then I w- I'd always make salmon and salad. And then one, one night she just shoved me over in the kitchen and says, I'm cooking. You know? I said, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think? What do you mean? I said, you probably can't even cook. I said, you were the baby of the family. I said, you had two older sisters. When did you ever cook? Right? So she starts cooking. Well, now she's getting these big scars, burn marks on her from the frying pan here. So now I'm teasing her for like weeks. Hey, you did it again. And she said, I don't know. It's just, it's a little bit high. And so, yeah. so now she's cooking dinner. So that went on for a little while. And, and on its, then she says to me, she says, you know, you're always in your fucking office. I'm in the other room. There's a pool and a hot tub downstairs. There's a gym. Do you think it would kill you to take an hour out of your schedule and just come downstairs so I don't have to go down there by myself? Well, I'm a protective male. It <laughs> seems reasonable. So off I go. I go downstairs. There's a universal machine. I hit the weights, and then she does some laps. She sits in a hot tub. But then I, I do the weights. I do the, you know, some laps. I sit in a hot tub. We laugh. We joke with all the other tenants in the buildings. One of those big, giant hot tubs, big as this room. And then we go back upstairs. So that we do that about half a dozen times. Then one day we're about to go back up. And I said to her, I said, you know, and she was a runner in high school. And I said, you know, whenever we go back upstairs, you always take the elevator and I take the stairs. 
But I got a confession to make to you. I said, you know, we live on the 17th floor. Usually I make it till about the 10th or 11th floor. And then I stop and I get out and I take the elevator the rest of the way. You think I ran up 17th floor, but I only did about 10. She says, oh, really? So then I throw out the hook. I say, but, you know, if you ran ahead of me in that little bikini of yours, I bet you I could make it all the way to the 17th floor. I swear to God, it went down just like this. She looks at me real quick and then she looks away and she says, I could do that for you. So now let's freak. Huh? Oh my God, what did I just say? Right? You fucking idiot. Right? But a week later, we go on a date. We've been together ever since. Wow. Ever since. And you got a bunch of kids. I got two kids. I got two beautiful guy. children. Yeah. See? So and about, after about a year, she said, uh, you know, look, you're too fucking old for me, you know? <laughs> so, and she still, we lived in it. And now we're back in Calgary by then. So we're, we're living, had this big house, semi. And anyway, so she has her own room. I have my own room. So she says to me, well, she says, look, you're just too old for me, man. It's not working out. Other people are looking at us weird. We, I got to break this up. I said, all right. So we're still, we're still in the same house, though. So one afternoon, when nobody's around, I jump her bones. I take her. And when I'm getting up, I said, see, you can't give up that. Right? And I walk away. <laughs> you know, <laughs> cocky male, eh? Yeah. And she said, you know what? You're right. She says, you might be an old man, but you're my old man. <laughs> that is an awesome. The, the sweetest words <laughs> I ever heard. There's, there's, words there's no way we could finish better than yeah. that. Like so that that's uh and on that wonderful story. Thank you so much for coming on the yeah. podcast. Yeah. And uh I, I hope you come on again yeah. in the future. Be my pleasure. Uh, great. Wonderful talking to you and take care. Okay, you got it. <laughs>